least I always tell the truth. All right, welcome everyone to the only podcast made exclusively for losers who died in World War II. Um, this week, Quentin, we are evil with dick. Um, and we are going to talk about a uh, couple of things, I guess. Uh, New Japan summer struggle in Jingu. Jingu? I don't even know how you pronounce it properly. AEW all out. Um, I don't know if you caught the Black Label Pro through being cool, but I might mention a little bit there. Not much to talk about. Anything else that you were going to bring up or anything else you had on the docket to talk about this week, Quentin? Uh, no, other than the fact that if you think that a 38-year-old man coming off of three years of retirement from professional sports and hypothetically averaging 22 points a game, regardless of his field goal percentage maybe not being ideal, and you wouldn't call that great, then I don't then I don't know what to tell you. Nah. That is an inside joke for <laughs> like four people, and I'm fine with that. Yeah calling them out um so let's see i haven't i i don't know about you but i haven't been paying attention to any news and stuff like that so i just don't even really um care about any kind of news things like that um, i mean like we, we could talk about one thing what's that uh the we banning third like what they do oh. third party stuff yeah yeah yeah, I mean, there's the problem with this is it's such a non-story right now, except for just the the outrage and shock of of Vince McMahon being a psychopath, right? Because we don't I mean, have any I mean, details the yet. Same, I mean, but at the same time, it's like and like like the, the, like the verbiage of independent contractor has always been bullshit, right? But you know, you're an independent contractor, but he'll also verbatim tell you that we don't we don't just own your gimmick name, we own like the person too, like. Wait, well, I thought it was an independent contractor. So when, like, I have I have a medical emergency or something like that that you don't think that you don't deem as uh, important, you can go tell me to fuck off and go and go find it, go find out about it myself, or you can you know make me go find my own way, you know, back and forth on the road and hotels and all that kind of stuff. I gotta I gotta find that out on my own, but you own my likeness somehow. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh. I mean, it's definitely fucked up, and it definitely flies completely in the face of the independent contractor status. Um, and we got uh, Andrew Yang calling out Vince McMahon on Twitter. Um, yeah. Which it's, like, it, fucking it, it smart. Was a, it was a big deal on Twitter. Like, I think, like, it, like uh, WWE always trends when they have, like, pay-per-views and shows going, but, like, this was, like, this was a really good amount of negative press that they got this week. They've been getting hit. I mean... The Saudi Arabia stuff was relatively big. That went that went over like pretty big. All the Benoit stuff had a second life with the the Dark Side of the Ring thing recently. Like they've been getting hit with a lot of negative publicity lately. The Owen, the Owen, the Owen Hart and Snooker and, oh. and Snooker and Snooker things. Yeah, both of those came out. All of that from from Dark Side of the Ring really is a lot of of bad shit hitting them. Um, the outbreak. I mean, the COVID outbreak. I think people di- didn't make it as mainstream, but it was out there. Uh, and then cutting people during the pandemic, I think, was even less mainstream, but it was out there. So, a lot of ill will towards WWE, and this is just icing on the cake. Um, basically, you know, and, and I listened to uh, Lance Storm on uh, Figure Four Daily or whatever, and he was saying, like, 
yeah, yeah, you know, the morale stuff. People always say morale, but it's like WWE is a great place to work when you're focused and you're the headliner and, and they're doing stuff with you and it's a terrible place to work if you're not. And, you know, he was trying to use that as a kind of an excuse or a cover ass for why they say that, oh, you know, people say that there's poor morale and this and that. But it's if you look at what he says and take it even at face value... What he's percentage? Saying the, he, he's saying the exact same thing. He's just like dressing it up. Yeah, but it's like what percentage of the employees are the top people who are focused into important things? Exactly. So what you're saying is that at any given time, the only people who are happy with their job in the WWE is five percent of the employees. You know what I mean? Like at the at the most, probably. It's like yeah. So what you're saying is, if you're not a top guy, that job fucking sucks. And he's just trying to say it euphemistically, and maybe he doesn't even realize that he, what he's saying actually makes that point but it does like it just says yeah if you work there it fucking sucks ass unless you're a top guy and right now roman reigns we talked about him last episode last week he's in a weird situation with the company because they're upset at him and he seems to be upset at them and i think that they were got i think that they got really complacent with you know mr yes sir kind of bootlickery john cena for so long being the good soldier that now they have a top guy who isn't at, doesn't put on as much of a happy face and just go along for the ride. Um, and so we'll see where it goes. I mean, now we've got heel Roman Reigns partnering up with uh, with Paul Heyman, and we'll see where that goes. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. My, my, my thing, oh, too, was, like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it boosts the profile of these performers. It, wouldn't you want these people to be as famous as possible? Like, even, like... But here's the thing, like, Vince is selfish and ego-driven, and, like, he has to control every single little aspect of somebody if they're signed to his company. So, like, God forbid uh, fucking Dakota Kai wants to go and stream for LGBTQ plus issues and, you know, donate to charities, and she is getting over and, you know, gaining gaining more fans through this really big audience that... WWE should tap into, but they haven't tapped into because they're so behind on fucking everything. Right. That these people who are, you know, using their platforms for good things for the most part, then are like, oh no, you can't do you can't do that anymore. Like, so what? You have to be go like you have to do your gaming through WWE. You have to be like fucking uh, Xavier Woods and have to do all your stuff through through WWE. At this point, it makes zero sense. Right, and it's. It is interesting to think about because maybe Vince wants to get a taste. He's hearing that they're making some money, some of the some of the female talent. Obviously, this is just basically this is just the indies trickling upwards, which seems to have been the case for I don't know, the past decade or so, the opposite of what we're kind of what you may be used to um in that WWE kind of sets the sets the game and then it trickles down to everywhere else anymore it's been it seemed to have gone the opposite way where everything comes from somewhere else and trickles up where the female wrestlers on the indies in japan and in the indies make a bunch of money off of creepy wrestling fans for lack of a better term who who are guys who are willing to spend a bunch of money on them for them to do things that make them you know feel like they have a intimate relationship with them parasocial relationship whatever um and Vince hears about this and wants to get his beak wet because he figures, I made you a star. You're only making this money because of me or whatever. And not realizing, I mean, not even just that, like, why does he need to be control of everything? But, like, that WWE and Vince McMahon. <laughs> hey, Bailey, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, Bailey. Um, 
WWE and Vince McMahon sticking their fingers and putting their branding on on anything is just going to hurt the the it ability it, for it these it, wrestlers. It makes it, le- it yeah. makes it less cool. Yeah, and it's just gonna make it so that they're going to have less buzz, less kind of star power, and it's just gonna make them yeah less cool for lack of a better word. It's just like ah, but that reminds me actually, and I was going to bring this up, and I was I would have forgot if you if we hadn't started talking about this, is I watched uh, WWE Payback, not all of it, but a good amount of it. It's the most that I've watched from a WWE pay per view in a long time, and one thing that was in the same vein of that that I found fucking jarring was um the WWE women's uh, tag team title match Sasha Banks and Bailey basically every other fucking move that they threw was a running knee strike and i haven't been watching WWE enough to know if this oh, is oh yeah yeah it's and it and it <laughs> yeah. came from Japan and in the indies and and it really comes from Kenny Omega like Kenny Omega made the uh. knee strike a thing and now everybody does it and i'm watching it and i'm just like this doesn't look right at all it just does not because they're WWE style trying to run do running knees and they just they look so weak and fake and shitty and I'm just like god I did not realize but yeah like now even the WWE in ring is like chasing after the you know Japan and the indies in ring it's like what what's going on here but realistically like that show I, I said it in the slack but like what I watched the payback was better than anything I saw on takeover and better than pretty much anything, you know, better than the the four way Iron Man match for the NXT title. It's like, damn, is the WWE main what, roster what, did better that, than did NXT? That, did, that, did that air already? Yeah, it was bad too. You didn't see it? I yeah, fuck no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Shit. Yeah, and I think maybe even the the rematch is happening probably tonight or tomorrow night. I think they might be on Tuesdays now, um, at least for a couple weeks. So yeah, I mean WWE main roster now being like watchable but it's still not good enough to make me want to like pay attention to it i mean i was hoping biggie versus sheamus would be fun and it was like whatever bobby lashley versus apollo cruz was actually pretty good um you know i've been i've always been a fan of both those guys so of course i'm gonna like it but they were pretty good there um riddle Uh, versus corbin one more thing about the uh banning of third party uh apps or whatever um like you gotta remember that wwe is not touring right now right a lot of people aren't getting paid Roman Roman Reigns money, or Braun Strowman money, or Seth Rollins money, or uh, Sasha Banks money. Like they're not getting they're not getting paid that much. So like someone like you know that might still be in NXT and working on what's what's more still like you know adjacent to a developmental deal, getting you know getting on Twitch and streaming and getting us and getting some donations and subs. Like that money for them you know can go a long way and like you know help some things like like even just like from from that aspect too like you mentioned like the cameo stuff and while there's always been a market for that with wrestling fans being creeps a lot of the time like even just the basic idea that you can get like donations and subscriptions on twitch that people you know will pay you for and you can make you know bring in bring in a pretty a pretty some pretty good pretty good income doing that too like it's just, it's just such a weird thing to just suddenly do right and I mean, and talking about that, th- and this is something I don't know if this is as common anymore, or if it's even something that they allow anymore. But I've heard old school WWE wrestlers talking about the pay structure and how it works in the past, and that you can get a draw on house shows. So basically, you go, you work a house show, and you can get paid based on the house right there, then and there. They'll cut you a check or whatever. 
Um, and you can even like get more than what you would based on the draw, what the, what the house was like to the point where some people end up, they owe more, they owe back or they've gotten more than what their downside guarantee would have been. So if you did that and you got some draws or you got paid based on the house on a couple of house shows early in the year when they were still doing house shows and then now they're not, you could actually be overdrawn to the point. There's probably there's people who may have gotten all of their money for the year already because they got paid out at house shows or wherever beforehand. And then now they're not getting anything because now that you're not working house shows, you're not getting paid for house shows. So now you're only getting your downside for the year. And if you've already gotten paid more than your downside for the year, they just stop paying you. So there's right. could be people who are sitting at home not getting a check. I mean, maybe I guess merchandise, which they say online merchandise is up, but is it up for everyone? So there could be people who are sitting at home not making any money, and now they're being told you can't even do this to make a couple bucks. You know what I mean? Like, how far away are we from Taylor Wilde working at the Sunglass Hut, but it's, you know, WWE wrestlers? Like... I, would it be insane? I mean, probably, probably not likely, but you heard the fucking stories about Leo Rush and talking about travel and the fact that he wasn't getting paid yet because he was still under developmental contract. Yeah, but, then, but, yeah, but you know how, how that goes. Leo Rush is young and black and outspoken, so obviously mm-hmm. he just like is just making shit up for attention or exaggerating. When right. like no, like even Bailey, I remember like when uh when there was an interview clip of Bailey, of Bailey floating around when she was getting interviewed somewhere and they were talking about like travel and lodging and like those kind of expenses and person like say like wait they don't do that for you and bailey was just sitting there just like stuck like uh yeah Yeah. and imagine you're paying all that out of your pocket and it it is you're still i mean they don't have any money if you're just making developmental pay it's not great you know that's the thing people don't realize that's what i said like when leo rush like said that like it was a very reasonable thing for leo for leo rush to say that considering the fact that like Leo Rush hadn't done much in terms of like wrestling in WWE yet, and they would know he was a small guy that they're trying to figure out what to do. And so he's te- technically a manager, and like all these phrases that he came up with that you know he was saying that he was the mouthpiece for Lashley. He he was getting none of that merchandise, right? Like they, I don't know why people are gonna like go back and admit that like Leo Rush was like right about everything that he ever said, but you know. That's that's the that's the price of being like a young black dude, and people just wanting to, and people people just like latching. And, and I get it, like Leo Rush had his reputation based off some based off some stuff on the Indies. I I understand that, but that was clearly a case where that dude like knew exactly what he was saying. Right. No, I I honestly don't think that Leo Rush was ever out of line. I don't think that he made stuff up. I think that he pointed out some things that were worthwhile, and I think the stuff comes home to roost. I mean. Like, you hear just the way that fucking, like, someone like Mark Henry, who stood, who spoke out against Leo Rush, and just how often he seems to do this. Whenever another black performer has something to say, it seems like Mark Henry shows up to tell them that they should shut their mouth. It almost feels, you know what I mean? Like, he's he's being pushed on by someone to be the voice of reason in these situations, um, just to make the WWE look good, and it's pretty... It's pretty fucking annoying, especially when it's something like that. Like you like pointing out with, with Leo, who's like completely right. But it's, you know, you pointed out, but it's, it, it goes across the board. Cause not too long ago, like AOC, she was very popular, big deal. She gets elected to Congress and, uh, she tweeted some stuff out saying like, Oh, I can't afford to live in Washington yet because I haven't actually gotten paid as a Congress person yet. 
And people were like, oh, look at the, you know, oh, spoiled brat. Well, why doesn't she have this and that? And she's complaining and that, and she must be dumb what? and not good with like, her money. Like, it's like, it's like, first off, like Washington is it's super, fucking expensive. Like yeah, like DC is fucking expensive as hell to live in. Yeah. And it's like, oh, she just wants, you know, mommy and daddy to pay her bills or the government to pay her bills. And it's like, yeah, she's an elected official, but she hasn't gotten paid yet. She hasn't made any money from that yet. So she's literally someone who's just a bartender. You can't expect someone if you're a normal fucking person who has a normal fucking job, you don't have money to pay rent for a second apartment in one of the you know most population dense, high cost of living cities just out of nowhere. When you already live in New York, which is also high you know cost city, where you don't have a bunch of extra disposable income to pay rent, that's the same situation that Leo was in. It's like, sure, he's got his dream job and he's going to hopefully make some money. Which the way it sounds, it sounds like he never really did, unfortunately. But it was like, oh, you shouldn't be complaining. You have your dream job. And it's like, yeah, he's not complaining. He's just saying, this is fucking impossible. Like, I'm I'm really in a bad situation that shouldn't be the case for someone who, quote unquote, has their dream job. And it's true. Yeah. And it's like, that's the thing about Leo leaving WWE and possibly even leaving a business is he wasn't a fucking mark. Like, like that's the thing. And people praise, uh, what's his name? Pat McAfee. I heard someone. I heard some people praising. Oh, you know what the thing about Pat McAfee is? He's not a mark for himself, and that's why he was so good. And he understands wrestling as a fan, but he was fine, you know, serving his role and, blo- and playing this. And it's oh, let's praise Pat McAfee because he's not a mark and he's smart to the business. Leo Rush is not a mark for the fucking business, and he brings up that he's not getting paid. And now, oh yes, like you said, he's uppity. He needs to shut his fucking mouth. He needs to not be so outspoken. He needs to pay his dues and carry people's bags. It's fucking bullshit. It really is completely bullshit. Um, Brock Lesnar, uh, excuse me, Brock yes. Lesnar alleged, allegedly uh, leaving WWE, his deal, you know, expiring, getting, getting the UFC news cycle buzzing again. Um, do you think that WWE doesn't, doesn't anticipate getting Brock back and that's why they put Roman and Paul together? Uh, do you think they just like, you know, eventually Brock's going to come back for the payday, all that kind of stuff, but like, it is interesting to me that they put, did put Roman and Paul together because for a long time, people have clamored for Roman Reigns to do something different. And now it just so happens that with Brock's uh, negotiations being being made public, that now they finally turn Roman Reigns heel. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Brock will be back when it makes sense. I don't think that there's any reason to think that he that he's leaving but it's also brock so if he gets the right offer i think he just takes it you know what i mean i don't think he has loyalty to vince and i think that's why vince loves him so much is because he doesn't kiss his ass and and take his shit um so i yeah and i think that they just want to get something out of paul because they're paying him on his performer his talent contract to do nothing so fuck it we don't have brock we don't for the foreseeable future the second brock is ready to come back they just put him and Heyman back together probably and do some kind of feud or maybe even don't have Brock come back as a baby face and just feud directly with Roman and Paul um wouldn't be that crazy you kind of did something similar in the past with Punk um and Brock and Heyman so could definitely see you know doing something there um even the Big Show feud where where Heyman turned on Brock and went with Big Show there was that whole thing so I mean you could definitely see him do something um but yeah, I don't think that there's. I don't think there's any chance that Brock really. I, definitely, I don't think he does UFC. Um, just doesn't make any sense. John Jones obviously wants the fight. 
Um, which is kind of funny to think about because, you know, they did, they cut the angle for Cormier Brock and they just never had the, had the fight. And now Jones wants the fight, um, and might get it. If Jones, you know, runs his yap long enough, uh, and, and can talk Dana into it. I, I could see, cause he even is saying like he's retiring, um, or trying to claim that he's going to be retired until he gets a fight that is worthwhile for him or something like that. So he, he wants to move. To, he wants to move to heavyweight. I think he, uh, like, yeah, that was I'm it, thinking, wasn't I, it? Yeah, I, I think I think he wants he wants to fight Stipe. He wants to go and fight Stipe, and be like, "Well, look, I just came and beat Stipe in my first shot. Uh, fuck you, DC." Right. Yeah. So so I think yeah I think that's it. He's saying that he's retiring unless he gets to fight heavyweight, um, and he wants the Brock fight. You know because of he'll hopefully he thinks he'll make money, and in any other situation he would. But I don't know how much money you really make on that fight right now. Um, uh, pay pay per view still exists. You'll make money off of it. Yeah, but not like they would have in the past. I just don't think you can get the same buzz. But maybe, maybe we'll see. I mean, I just Brock's, Brock's return. Brock's return will be a big deal. Right? Yeah, it will. People still care about Brock and UFC, right? So, although yeah, this, um, I mean, he won his last fight, but then he instantly pisses dirty. So. Ah, I think he's still. I think yeah, I think he's still draw. It, it, it doesn't matter. Like you, UFC at this point is like just a whole, like it's like they've homogenized everything and made things not, not matter at all. Yeah, to the point where everything's like, just like a fight's a fight. Like right. it does not matter. Well, and Brock is the only motherfucker who's able to keep star power both in WWE and UFC because he doesn't feel like he's just another guy because he doesn't let himself just go through their ringer and be just he's one not, of he's guys. Not, he, he's not he's not overexposed yeah yeah so so yeah i mean i think john jones if john jones can talk them into that fight i think that there's already probably still that relationship and the contract stuff with brock and ufc and wwe because they they already had allowed for him granted for him to be able to have a fight under contract so i think that could happen otherwise i don't see much else happening he's not going to go back to japan uh, AEW, I mean, wouldn't be, I don't know. I think it would be fucking stupid of AEW to try to do anything with Brock. Even if they could, I just don't yeah, think it, that it, helps him in any yeah, way. It, it, wouldn't, it would not be smart. Yeah, we talked it over before about, like, Punk not even being a positive for them. And I think you get less of a positive and less goodwill from Brock, let alone, like, everything else, all the headache that would come with him. Um, the only good you could get out of it is if you could really get him to agree to to putting over Moxley big just because you've got that history, especially with Moxley basically openly griping about his issues with Brock um, in their WrestleMania match. If you could get some kind of big vengeance match, you could do a Brock versus Jericho. You could. And I think that that would maybe get people's attention, but I don't, I don't know if it does them a lot of good in the long run is my point. I think that you can help build up Moxley. If you have something that would be intriguing and help give, some more credibility to Moxley based on the history that they have um, that could make it worthwhile. But otherwise, I mean, I think you could maybe pop a buy rate for a pay-per-view, but I don't necessarily know how much residual goodwill. And I do think that in some ways you might get negative will because I think that the kind of fans who are into AEW are looking for an alternative to WWE. And Brock is really the epitome of like people's one of people's major issues with WWE. So bringing him in to have him do the same shit that he does in WWE, I think would be a negative to those fans. Like, think about the, uh, the Dylan Hales take on Brock, right? That he's overpaid, and he's not worth a damn, and he doesn't draw and all this. And I don't think that, yeah, that he, type he, of there's fan... No, there's, like, there's, no, there's no tangible information that Brock actually makes a difference. Yeah, that kind of stuff. and so I think that that kind of fan who looks at him that way, you bring him in to have him do the same thing that he does in WWE, just looks at you as, like, copying from WWE with a guy that they don't like. So I just, yeah, I don't I don't think that he helps, really. 
I have a question for you. Uh, I know you're not into as MMA as much as you used to be, but I was talking to a friend, uh, but I think last week, right around this, who is the best MMA fighter of all time to you? Don't need to go super in depth here. Just if Ooh. you had like you know gun to your head answer, who's the uh, maybe not best ever, maybe best you've ever seen with your own eyes, like most talented, wherever, wherever you want to go with that. It's pretty. Open. I want to leave it pretty open. Uh, I mean, to me, like at his peak, Fedor. Okay. Just because he felt so unbeatable and was so unbeatable, and as a heavyweight who was like a small, you know, a small size, but fought in the heavyweight division kind of guy who was just like so dominant. And I guess the only issue is you can kind of say untested because he didn't really fight any of the other top, top heavyweights because of like never really having a big run at his peak in UFC. Um, but for like dominance, Fedor, but I mean, best fighter, John Jones. I mean, I think oh, it, okay. John yeah. Jones is the the best fighter of all time. Like, just I just, I just, want, yeah. I just, I just want to make sure because I know a lot, of, a lot of people like don't like him, so they just like no, they'll like say like no, they'll like avoid saying him as that for whatever reason. I remember I was talking to I was talking to a friend about this, just talking to the same friend about this, and it's like for the first time I saw John Jones, uh, I think what it was it was it had to be like his second UFC fight, and I was like, oh no, yeah, this guy is. Like, no one's going to beat him. Yeah. And then, like, he just kept getting better and better. And, like, he's facing, like, Rashad Evans and making Rashad Evans look look bad and destroying Rua and Machida and, 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 you know, Daniel Cormier is a Olympic-level wrestler and, like, he's out-wrestling him in, in yeah. their fights. I'm like, and, and, and even then, like, the time he got popped, like... He's one. Of, he's one of the funny. He's like it's funny enough with him considering like everything that everything else he's been a bit like been caught for like cocaine, DUI, all that kind of stuff. But when he got popped by Usada, like it legitimately was like some sort of like dick pills or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> like that's the funniest thing about him is like the one like he like he's done he's fucked up all these many times, but then like the one time we were like ah gotcha you're a cheater. It's like no actually he's not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, John Jones is great, and it's fucking crazy to think how long, like, he was presented as a baby face, because he's, like, the greatest heel, I think, in the history of, oh of, of MMA. Like, he is such a great heel. And even going with that, like, with kind of the point that I was making about, like, coming across, like, the, the greatest fighter or whatever, like, like, John Jones is a great heel, too, because he seems beatable, but he's so fucking dominant and so good. Like, he's so skilled and talented that obviously he isn't beatable but he he fought like a guy that could lose and i think that that made his fights even more interesting like it was believable that almost anyone could beat him and you could you could work yourself into believing that he was going to lose whenever you wanted to but in the end of the day like he was too fucking good like just way too good like talent as a fighter he's like yeah definitely i think historically best fighter ever and i think that there's some guys from early ufc early mma in general but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's funny that you like look like go back and like think about like the first wave of like UFC legends and like how much better the guys are now. Right. <laughs> like, like the Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz, Randy Couture's, uh, Mark Coleman to the world. Uh, you know, if you want to go down to like the lower weight classes, like uh, like a like a like a Matt Hughes and all that kind of shit. Like the guys are just like 
so much better now. And like it's only it's only been like ten or ten or twelve years. It's just still such a young sport. Yeah. And those guys who are still like at the top of the uh, like the, damn near the top of the like their division in, in the, like only like 12, 13 years ago, like it's hard to like man. I don't even know if that if Chuck Liddell is like a top would be like a top ten like heavyweight. You know what I mean? Right. But I mean even even guys that aren't from the the beginning beginning of UFC beginning beginning of MMA, but like even someone like uh like a uh, Rampage is like a guy who right. who like if you compared him to the training schedule, the knowledge that people have now. Like, he was in the Wild West. Even, like, fucking Bob Sapp, I think, is a guy who gets overlooked uh-huh. for raw ability for how good he was based on the fact that, like, the Ramp- training... Rampa- Ramp- Rampage with, like, today's, like, training regimen? Yeah. I- yeah, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah, so it's like, you look back at some of those guys and you just think about, like, what could they have been like? Even, like, the early, like, the Gracies, like, some of the early Gracie guys, like... If they had more developed and, and like nuanced games and weren't just doing BJJ purely BJJ, like who knows? Like Severn is another guy. If you think about if Severn was better mm. was a better um, stand up fighter, like and it, and if he was coming around now, he would have trained a lot more for his striking. Like it's weird to think how much better because the sport is so much better now than it ever was before, and it is because so many more of the people train specifically to wrestle MMA and and. It actually exists as a discipline that it's still developing, but yeah, it's like historically. But I think yeah, I mean, the the guy who's perfected it the most and is just the most talented as of right now is John Jones. I'm I'm thinking though, it's like I'm not sure if I don't prefer the days where like everything was like an actual styles clash. Right. Like now you see like everything was like people are trained to do everything. They're trained in taekwondo and karate and kickboxing and Brazilian jiu jitsu and wrestling and like practicing their takedown defense and their ground games and all that kind of stuff like everyone does that but it was funny to come in there and just like think of the styles clash like man like what's like George St. Pierre gonna do like this guy with this like really good like amateur wrestling background gonna, like what's he gonna do facing like Tiago Alves this like guy coming in with these like awesome like Muay Thai knees and these leg kicks like like like, like stuff like that used to be like you know, the, like, the style makes the fight, and yeah. now it still exists, but, like, it matters, like, less and less now, and it just boils down to who's better now right. more than anything. Right, and, I mean, it was, it's, it, the thing that sucks is it's, it has to happen, because it's, like, it's, you can't, uh, we can't freeze people in amber and have it not happen, and with the internet, and with the fact that, you know, UFC exists as a league, it's, like, people are going to see what works and pick things up and develop and adapt to be the best overall so that they can win more because that's the nature of competition. You know, it sucks because you can't keep all the disciplines on, you know, separate islands and have them never interact with each other and just come together for like the big tournament once a year where you have all the different styles, the best fighters from each style go up against each other. Cause that's what, yeah, that was what made early UFC, early MMA so fun was getting to see that. Like what the fuck happens? This is like real world kind of like, you know, you know, battle of the warriors kind of thing, which is really fucking cool. Um, especially yeah, having different disciplines and all that, but you just you can't you can't keep that siloed off now with the internet and and right again just back to like what I was talking about earlier, like with the the indies and Jap- Japan style like infiltrating into WWE, like it's just you can't keep things separated anymore. All right, are we ready to get some to some wrestling? Let's do it. Uh, how do you want to? What order do you want to get into stuff here? Uh, I guess we can talk about most recent first, so we, we can do all out. All right. Uh, so all out 
coming uh, from Jacksonville, Florida, Daly's Plaza. Um, as AEW has been constantly. Excalibur's back on commentary. Uh, been back for like two weeks now after his little uh, <laughs> sabbatical, his little nap. I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast at all. Um, but yeah, you know, people came came back with some uh, problematic stuff that Excalibur had said uh, a while back. And obviously, Human Tornado says that, like, it was his idea, and he told both Excalibur and Kevin Steen to basically call him the N-word. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Quentin, have you have we talked about this on the podcast at all? No, no we didn't. It was before, like, we didn't yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, so, it's nice to have him back. I don't know. Are you, What do you think? Because I know you're a fan of Excalibur on commentary, correct? Yeah, I, I have nothing to say about this. Like, right. It's when when is that from? Two thousand six, two thousand seven. Like, yeah, if not if not earlier, or yeah, if not longer ago than that, yeah. Like it's like man, like, especially human tornado, like and like the way and like how he acts and like people that he hung around, he was hanging around at that point, and like I, I'm not, I'm, it doesn't surprise me, and like we just hope the people are better at this point. Like I'm not gonna sit, like I'm not gonna sit there in look at this clip from like 15, 16 years ago and think that like I think Excalibur is a bad person he may have probably made some like shitty judgments like being like drunk and hanging around like crazy like, hanging around like other crazy wrestlers and who have like wild ideas and they're or thinking of it just in a wrestling capacity and not in like a, a how will people in actual life view this like 15 years down the line capacity right <laughs> so like I mean like it's yeah, it's obviously it's not good. It's not good that it like resurfaced, but I'm not. I'm not really a big fan of the idea that like you're gonna like bring this back up in order to make someone look like a bad person either. Yeah, and and it is. Yeah, like you said, it's like based on history, what you've seen. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not. You know, wrestling is separate, and that's one thing too that you have to even like even beyond just like what was acceptable in society at the time. It's like it's relatively recent that like the idea that wrestlers like who they are as a character in front of the camera and off screen is like such a big deal and so connected yeah like yeah like you have to like now you have to like now like something happens if your character if you like do something in the realm of like being a wrestling character you don't have to, you don't have to be you don't have to be accountable for that like yeah. afterwards now right. like which is which is a new concept and i feel like people like don't accept that these things are new concepts now so like all someone can do is apologize and say like look it was immature it was dumb i can guarantee i'm not, I'm not i wouldn't do that and i'm not a kind of person anymore but like sometimes like certain concepts are new and it takes time for these concepts to be learned and like you can't so you can't make someone go retro- retroactively learn that 15 16 years ago <laughs> yeah exactly can't make him uh change stuff that he did in the past so open up with the buy-in i don't know did you watch any of the buy-in um, I have never watched a pre-show in my okay. life. Okay, don't blame you. Nothing, uh, nothing good here. Joey Janela versus uh, Serpentico. Um, Serpentico, one of the Bendejos, um, and uh, was it Jay Cruz? Um, used to see him a little bit in PWX. I don't know if we've ever reviewed any of his matches or anything. I'm pretty sure he's not the one that was in an abusive relationship with Mia Yim. Um, that was his old tag team partner. Um, you know, it's Joey Janela and Serpentico. Nothing worthwhile. 
Um, Private Party versus the Dark Order, uh, which it's the Beaver Boys Dark Order. You know, obviously good. These are two of the better tag teams, honestly, in the company that are just... It just shows, like, especially with having Omega and Paige at the top of the of the division, that, like, even really solid, good tag teams are on the back burner at this point because the AEW tag team division is really stacked, and I think it gets overlooked. I, I do think that there are a good amount of people who call it out, but it gets overlooked just how stacked the division really is where you've got the undercard, you know, pre-show tag team is this level of quality of these two teams. Um, open up the pay-per-view proper. We've got uh, the the match that the internet had to complain about to get on the main show. Tooth and Nail, Big mm. Swole versus Britt Baker. Uh, not the best way to start the show, I would say. What do you think of, uh, of this opening up the show? Um... You're probably not the best way to open the show if you like if you like go through and like look how everything worked like retroactively. I probably would have gone with like the eight man tag or or something like that. But yeah, this and then like the fact that it didn't wind up being very good either. Uh, yeah, just not a good, not a good, not a good decision. Like I under, like I understand like you know the wanting to push for and have more women's representation on the show. It just didn't wind up being a good match. Yeah, and I mean, it's not their fault. I mean, it's not the women involved in the match's fault, but Big Swole is obviously really solid. I've seen her wrestle a ton out here in Southern California. Um, And, you know, she's not from here, but there's companies that would run out here regularly and bring her out. Um, Britt Baker is injured. (laughs) She can't walk. You know what I mean? Like, it's not her fault that, that they're pushing, putting her in this cinematic whatever. And if you think about it in terms of the past of these pay-per-views the big like they don't do it as much on most of the pay-per-views but the first what is it um all in they like open the show with that big ridiculous like comedy kind of vignette thing to open if you think of this in place of that they're not doing the kind of the elite being the elite style vignette to open the show and this is in place of that this is actually in some ways a little bit better because it actually is pushing forward actual storylines from the tv rather than just doing goofy backstage stuff. Um, so in that way, it's kind of like, oh, okay. But they've kind of gotten away from that. So it's funny to think of this as harkening back to, like, all in the first, like, pay-per-view thing that they did that had the goofiness, and they've really gotten away from all that goofiness and bringing this back here. Um, follow that up, we've got uh, the Young Bucks versus Jurassic Express. Um Again, this is what I'm talking about. The tag team division is stacked. I mean, Jurassic Express is really becoming a pretty solid tag team. Um, and you've got the Young Bucks, which is, I mean, I don't know, arguably the greatest tag team of the decade. I, I don't even know if that's an argument, honestly. I think it's pretty hard to say that there's any team that's better for the 2010s and now going into the 2020s of a better tag team than the Young Bucks. And... I mean, I mean, look, I, look, I, I say all time. But, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's where I was going next. Arguably the greatest tag team of all time. I mean, I think that saying the greatest tag team of the last decade is pretty solid, like pretty easy to just say. Greatest tag team of all time. It's in the fucking conversation now. And you got them going up against a tag team that's young, but putting it together. And uh, I mean, fun match. Quentin, what was your takes on this match? I like to, I like I like to see the young bus get young bus get a little bit more heelish in here. I like I liked uh, seeing them seeing them turn it on and you know Jungle Boy 
I, I, I like Jungle Boy a lot. I think Luchasaurus is always going to be the guy that gets most of the praise for being like a fun guy, a fun guy that can do like big man spots and also can do like spin kicks and other all types of wacky shit. But Jungle Boy is a really good face in peril. And I like seeing the aggression of the Young Bucks resurface here. I thought that was a good like storytelling device. And considering like later, like I said, like transpire transpire later on in the show, like I think it's a really good way to set the table for what AEW has planned. Yeah, and I like the. I mean, I do like the teasing. It's it's perfect, like you said, because this is like foreshadowing. It's not even teasing because at this point, you really don't have any reason to think why would the young bucks be kind of subtly heel right so it is like oh yeah they, they're working a little heel here they've been a little bit they've been a little bit grumpy they've not been in the best mood they have the fucking bullshit with with adam page fucking them out of the gauntlet match and that's why they're here in the opening you know or the second to the opening but really the opening match that's happening live in front of the crowd against a a tag team that's at this point should be beneath them they should be doing something bigger on the pay-per-view um and, uh, and yeah, you get to show that aggressive side of them. And the Young Bucks are really good right now at, be- at being able to switch in between. They can play a grumpy vet tag team against a younger team that can high fly, but they can still also be the the action team. And they can go up against older team, more established team, even or just a slower pace style team, and, and be the, the sizzle. So, I mean, the fact, again, like... We, there's no need at this point for us to continue banging on about the young bucks, but it is like the fact that people don't appreciate just how solid they are at every aspect of tag team wrestling is like, it just shows that like at some point you can't make people take their head out of the sand and it's just, you have to just accept that they just don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, follow this up with the, uh, the casino. What is it? Casino battle Royal. Um, yeah, I mean, I like this, and I think that I hear people who are upset that, you know, oh, such and such match has so much build. Like, oh, the stuff with Darby and Cage and and uh, and Taz and, and, and uh, God damn it, why can't I think of his name? Um, Stroke Daddy. Um, like, all, that's... Ricky Starks. Ricky Starks have such a fucking great, uh, great build, and then they're not even in a match, and... and uh, Lance Cade has like all of this cool build like all and all this and it's like why are they just in this thing and it's like well because you have a ton of storyline stuff going on in here and I've actually liked something like this especially because it's not like just a shitty battle royal where you just have like 20 people in the ring and they're just all in the way it's like you actually get some action everyone mixes it up and you further develop a bunch of different storylines they've got a ton of people in the company who aren't getting focused on constantly on TV this makes a good space for everyone and and it isn't, but it isn't a waste of time. You know what I mean? It, it still feels important because you do push stories and everything moving forward. So I actually really like this. And I think that AEW has done a really good job of taking something that at this point in 2020 has felt so just fucking shitty and so stereotypical and so boring and pointless as a battle royal. Like I said, like historically big shows would have just big battle royals where you throw 20 guys in the ring and they just all are in there and they don't do jack shit and nothing happens and eventually someone wins and they've really revitalized it with the battle royal that they do here the casino royal battle royal that like takes an element of like the royal rumble style battle royal but it's not exactly the same so it's kind of their own unique thing and it's still like 
is able to be interesting and serve a lot of storylines all at the same time. And so I'm just like, I actually really like that they've reinvigorated a match style to actually serve a purpose for them that they really need right now because they have so many people that they can't really get everybody on the show. Like, they, they couldn't have every person in this match who deserved some kind of showing on the pay-per-view to actually get it without something like this. So all of that. And then the biggest, <laughs> to me, my number one highlight for the fucking thing is go through the whole match. Everything's very interesting, unfortunate stuff for, like, Matt Seidel. I feel really bad for him botching the shooting star press. But my biggest takeaway and the thing that made me the happiest is that when there was a, a momentary tease that looked like Eddie Kingston could win, the crowd loses their yeah. shit. I mean, the crowd pops big for Kingston. And I don't know that I would have predicted that, especially with this crowd who is off and on and not super hot the entire show. But the AEW crowd at this point really fucking likes Eddie Kingston. And that's super fucking cool to me, at least as a big fan of the guy. You know what I mean? Kingston's been a home run in every yeah. appearance he's had on AEW. He's been, he's been a home run from like his promo forming that weird stable with uh, um, the Lucha Brothers and, and Butcher and the Blade from the match with Cody. He's, he's been nothing but a home run on AEW. Yeah. And I just, I know that for me and you and for wrestling nerds like us, like we see that, but to hear the entire crowd has bought into him really makes me happy. Um, I, I think AEW usually does a pretty good job of like, mixing in mixing in story storylines in their in their battle royals so like i never issue here because like you said they talk about like the brian like brian cage and darby and like brian cage and darby interact in this match and they further that storyline in this in this match and you know kingston gets to make it get, kingston gets to make a good run and hopefully side like that that sucks it really does that that's gonna be like the lasting image of this match but I like Matt Seidel. Matt Seidel is one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time. Like, and he has a lot of matches I would love to see him in. Like, of course I would love to see like Brian Cage versus Matt Seidel. I'd love to see like Mox versus Matt Seidel or Darby versus Seidel or like Seidel get thrown in the tag team and like maybe add another tag team to the mix or Seidel versus Brody Lee. Like, like that would be like there's a lot of good shit that he can do and I'm just hoping that this is like will he, can can be a regular thing for him. I'm not sure if he's like signed or whatever but like something like Brody versus Matt Seidel sounds like money to me well and just with Seidel's history just recently of really being a guy who who takes younger high flyer light heavyweight type guys and and helps them develop to that next level like think about Seidel mentoring Jungle Boy think of Seidel having a series with Sammy Guevara on the level of like his series with Osprey like that's the kind of stuff that I could see being very interesting as well. On top of just right. on top of just a bunch of good matches, he's also a guy who you've got plenty of young undercard talent who could definitely use a little bit of polish that I think Seidel can help put that polish on them. You know what I mean? So So uh yeah, definitely a positive. Hopefully it, it, this wasn't a one-time thing and he is signed and and showing up more and more. I think that think i heard someone say that he's in the roh pure title tournament i don't know that that's true but i believe i heard someone say that so so that's the possibility another thing overlooked on uh, by both of us right now that i just remembered was will hobbs will hobbs was another guy who really got to shine in this so right. like i said like if you just took the matches that had build on tv and just had like instead of this match you just had something going on with like cage and darby or whatever starks and darby whatever then you don't get that either you don't get hobbs now getting a chance to show off and and really 
solidify that he can be something. Um, so yeah, so the opposite side of that <laughs> that we both really enjoyed and the gimmick and I think that they worked and made it work. The next match, the gimmick and everything that happens here kind of ruins uh, it. And and this is a fucking nightmare in every sense of the word. I mean, Sammy Guevara, unfortunately, snake bit after months of feeling like this was a goddamn, they're really doing it. They're taking this guy who felt like a can't miss prospect for a long time. They, he's with Jericho. He's a big deal. He's the star of the big cinematic match. And then problematic tweets, problematic podcasts uh, comes back when and people are still a little bit upset feel like he comes back too soon and then now this and it's just like shit like i really hope that, yeah. that his career is not just completely stalled at this point but who knows i mean this match starts out interesting i like the callback with the you know with um sammy showing up in the golf cart from like i said from the uh what was the name of that match whatever it was the stampede stadium stampede match referencing that history between these two um, but then, yeah, I mean, the scissor lift spot, obviously it's been debated to death. Everyone's talking. How long was Matt Hardy out? How bad was it? Did he get a concussion? And Rebby Sky tweeting, arguing with everyone in the planet about that. They don't know what's really going on if they haven't talked to them, to her or Matt directly and all this and that. And I mean, it's what do you expect? That's just, that's what Rebby Sky does. <laughs> like that's her thing. Um, I didn't even... I didn't even know Rebby Sky's history before she got into wrestling. And I only recently found out. Like, did you know that she was, like, Miss Howard from Howard Stern and she was in Playboy and stuff? I didn't even know any of that. No, I did not know yeah. any of that. Yeah. So, like, she huh. was a model and she had done, like, Playboy, like, some kind of, like, I think, like, one of those ones that they do, like, college girls or whatever kind of thing. And then she was in some competition on Howard Stern Radio where they, like, bring girls in and they, they pick out whoever's, like, you know, the winner of the month. And then eventually she didn't even just win, like, her month. She ended up winning the whole year for whatever year she was in. And I learned all this from listening to Shocktober, um, which is, like, a Street Fight Radio does a shock jock podcast where they talk about shock jock history or whatever. But they brought up Rebby Sky because one of the hosts is, like, a wrestling fan and they talked about her history with a howard stern and i had never known any of that i always just knew rebby sky is like in the context of wrestling so it's very weird to think about that because of her her <laughs> i guess ever since and for even before but especially ever since she's been with matt she has a reputation for being such a uh such a drama very, very, very outspoken, fiery. outspoken a lot of drama fiery is a great way to describe her um and she is so she's one of these like reality star people who really wanted attention for, even from early on so it makes sense that when she has the chance it's it's the time but this matt hardy thing i mean fuck <laughs> like poor guy i don't know when they when this uh, look, matt, go ahead. Matt, Hardy, matt hardy had a very very clear and bad concussion yeah even if it even if whatever test results people people talk, talk, talking about came back negative and he you know it was not concussed like he needs to relax yeah. for a while and AEW should, like, I think they probably should address it and just, you know, try to, like, you know, let him heal and eventually people maybe just forget about this because that was definitely not a good look for, you know, we talked about it before, but everything about AEW does, they're going to be under a microscope because they position themselves as being, like, you know, we're about safety and progressiveness and all that kind of stuff. So they, like, everything they ever do is going to be under the microscope. Yeah. So, 
I like this is definitely one of, one of those things where people like they'll people will remember this and it's just like gonna be on AEW now like how they respond like in the like days and weeks like after now like that's gonna define them because you know they 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 chose this life they they're under the microscope for the positions and stances they took right and I mean this is you talk about it but they need I think that they shouldn't just try to sweep it under the rug and let it go because I do think that this is a a, a good teachable moment as you talk about it I this did not cross my mind until you were saying that but I do think that they should get Matt when he's clear and good to to go out there and and basically like say that he shouldn't have done what he did here yeah. and and on top of that they need to put in protocol for everyone involved because the way the the blame is not 100% on him but there is something to the you know toxic masculinity and that's not to say that only men do it but it is a macho machismo masculine thing that causes we, this we, 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 we can just we can just boil it down. if you don't want to do, do that we can just boil it on the pride and yeah. like pride in your work and pride in your profession and like no it causes you to do stupid things right but i that's the thing is it's not even you could say pride in your work pride in your profession but it's like did matt come back and really give an exemplary performance that he should be proud of afterwards like not really. Of, of, of course not, but you're not no. thinking logically at yeah. that point. Like especially when your brain just got fucking like shook around in all these different uh, right. all these different directions. Like you're not thinking logically. You're thinking I'm gonna go prove myself, not realizing you're making it look worse. Right. By doing that, on top of the fact that you are seriously injured and you should go rest and get checked out. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, fuck. I've done it. All. I've done it all myself. And if I could, and if I had the ability, and I was in the position to to put it out there i think that i would want to to make that kind of statement and say like this is stupid and i don't want to perpetuate this to more people thinking that this is how you do this and that you need to push yourself to risk your own not even just your safety and well-being but like your future health and and your life in general i mean who knows what could have happened here but yeah like i said it's been talked to death the match itself had promise, and it's really hard to even grade it as a match after what happened. Um, and it really sucks because it was like at a really, really important time in the show where it's like you get a good Young Bucks match, you get the Battle Royal, which is fun but gimmicky, and I don't think anyone takes it super seriously. But if you didn't follow that up with a fun, solid, interesting stunt show kind of gimmick match, I think that the crowd can get rolling. And then you get into the women's title match. And then I thought the women's title match was really good. You know what I mean? And so it's like, at that point, now now you can have a show that people are coming out of saying, this was a really good show. And I think that this happening completely derails that and ends it to where you got people online saying that, you know, this is the the first bad AEW show, AEW pay-per-view. And, you know, unequivocal bomb, according to some people, right? <laughs> and it's like... Yeah, I think that this really derails the show in a way that just like hurts the rest of the the, the rest of the show and then the way that you kind of think of the entire show overall. You 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 had the side L botch in the Matt Hardy the Matt, the Matt Hardy spot back to back. Yeah, like that's 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 a killer for any for any wrestling show for anybody. That's that's a hard thing to rebound from. Yeah, and I do think that unfortunately they they kind of didn't. Um, follow that up like i said sheeta versus rosa it's a champion versus champion match but only the aew title is on the line and i really liked this match yeah um, this is awesome yeah 
I thought it was interesting to think, and I heard someone else finally even reference it, but it feels like up until this point, no one's has even brought it up. But this is Cobra Moon that everyone fucking hated. If you remember when she debuted in Lucha Underground, so many people were like, this person is not good enough. She's too new. She's green. They're trying to push someone before they're ready. Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff. And then now, however many years it's been, I mean, she's one of the best women's wrestlers going right now, especially in the United States. Um, and it's like, you know, with Tessa gone, <laughs> you kind of have a vacuum at the top of women's wrestling and you got someone like Thunder Rosa who's able to bring it. And she's been bringing it for a while, honestly. Um, she was doing some really cool stuff in Texas while she was kind of getting this MMA inspired style under her feet a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously Sheeta, I've talked about it before. Big, I'm a big fan of Sheeta. So they come in here and my only issues with the match was like they set a table for me for a match that I was really into. Um, and then they just kind of unfortunately threw, threw the foundation out the window to then just have like your stereotypical kind of hot finished bomb throwing match towards the end. But it was like mm -hmm. opening up and you've got some pinpoint like kind of targeted work on the back by Sandra Rosa that I really wish had then continued throughout the match and it, she kind of transitions to some arm work and then by the end of it it's just kind of like a grab bag of just bombs and heavy hits and, and strikes and, and 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 slams back and forth and nothing that really like focuses in so I really like that and I really like that table setting but it is kind of like when you when you when you have that in this context it's definitely like okay cool nice foundation but when you don't follow through with it it's kind of like ah whatever and then it's like that would be fine but then compare it to some of the stuff we'll talk about later like in new japan where it's like you do that kind of focus and then it plays all the way through the entire match and through the finish it like it just makes it that much more um enjoyable and just makes for a a better showing overall but that said i mean these girls they're very good at this style and this is kind of the style du jour unfortunately is i think that a lot of stuff a lot of matches nowadays don't even have the base of this that's really good where it's like like i said the targeted uh, offense um and the selling that's done really well to open it up to then go into the kind of big kind of bomb throwing stuff like now a lot of the matches now even like top level matches against like really great workers will have like primarily just the big bomb throwing stuff and not much else even as a foundation so yeah these they're both super talented both really good workers both on the mat um and you know with the kind of strikes so good stuff i mean what did you think of this one sheena isn't like quite the same uh quote unquote, isn't quite as good of a champion as uh Riho, i would say but still she's like she's really good in what, in what she's asked to do and i think that you know, Sheeta was divisive back when she uh, back back in Japan, and I had a lot of friends that weren't big fans of her. And I put there, people like you know, absolutely adore her. And I feel like for the most part in AW, I've really liked Sheeta. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but like, I feel like for the most part, Sheeta's delivered. Would you Would you agree there? No, one hundred percent. And ever since the quarantine kind of started, and she became the focal point of the division, it felt like um, she's really grabbed, taken the ball and ran with it. And I think that she has developed into a better all-around worker in the United States compared to in Japan. Like, I really do. I think that it's fair for people who kind of judging her on her Japanese work to, to be a little bit hit or miss with her because she was a little spotty at times. But I think that since she's really 
like I said, been given the opportunity. She's really developed and 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 just been able to kind of always deliver. Uh, going back to Thunder Rosa, like, yeah, as Cobra Moon, like she was not very well liked, but at the same time, like Cobra Moon in the positions they put Cobra Moon in, she just like Cobra Moon wasn't good. Like, not the same thing about Thunder Rosa, like, but. Cobra Moon wasn't very good, but then, but then you remember, like again, like she was green. She debuted in twenty fourteen. Yeah, I think that was her, that was her wrestling debut, and then she, within a year, she's hired for Lucha Underground. Like the fact is that she just she was green. She wasn't good yet, and she's a late bloomer. She start she's thirty four now, so she started when she was like twenty, not twenty eight, maybe. Like she started she started late, but. She she's gotten a lot better, and she carries herself really well, which is the main thing for her. I think she just carries herself like she's like like a badass, really. And I think that like that's like one of the hardest things in wrestling to attain, like feeling like a legitimate threat, feeling like you legitimately have like an aura about you. And I really feel like Thunder Rosa has that for sure now. And like I wouldn't be mad if someone said that this is their match of the night. Like despite yeah. this go like you know you could say like devolving into like you know cliche bomb throwing, it had a nastiness at the beginning that I really liked, and I feel like it was like a big coming out party for both of these two. Well, yeah, and compare <laughs> compare Thunder Rosa to Carrying uh, Cross, uh, big topic of uh, discussion. But both people who got buzz in Lucha Underground in different ways. And where they're at now, and it's like, yeah, Thunder Rosa has done nothing but get better and improve, and Karrion Cross has just gotten better at marketing himself, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, this for when it when the match happened, I was like, okay, this is my match of the night. Obviously, at the point that it happens, pretty easy to say that, but it felt like this is going to stay my match of the night. Was kind of the way I felt. I was like, I don't think that anything else tonight is going to top this. That's how much I enjoyed it at the time. Um, right. So, yeah. So, then we go from there into the uh, eight-man. And I've heard some some negative on this from some people. Not much, but a little bit. And I just don't get it. It's a fine match. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what there is to dislike here. It's a fine match. Yeah. Like, I guess kind of just the idea a... that it, you didn't need it or something. It didn't need to be on the show kind of thing. And it's like, I, I, I guess. But this was a good story match. Um, and you have a lot coming out of it. I don't know. What did you think of it? You fine match, right? Yeah, it's fine. Like a bunch of mid card, a bunch of mid card guys, uh, other than other than Brody here, and you know it's like it's you know giving you know Zack Ryder something to do, you know Scorpio Sky getting to do something. The Natural Nightmares are you know they're fun. They're 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 an all right like lower of the lower of the card tag team. And it furthers the whole thing between Brody Lee and Cabana. Like it did exactly, it did exactly what it needed to do. There was some wicked, like nasty, like na- like nasty shit. Uh, um, there, like I, I think there's like this this discus clothesline that yeah. Brody Lee hits it was just fucking wild. Um, but no, like I think I think even like this is leading to a. Uh, Brody versus Dustin Rhodes uh, TV type, uh, TNT title match, right? Yeah, this sets that. Yeah, like it's this 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 is exactly what it needed to do. Like 
we can again you can argue that maybe they need to go as long, which I'll take. I think it went like fifteen minutes. If you wanted to say that this shouldn't went that long, you could chop it down to chop it down to nine minutes and have the exact same match, then that's fine. But I, I didn't find this offensive at all. No, and I think that it's just people who don't value kind of a multi-man tag team match, just because you know that's they're treated as fodder. I think I heard someone referencing it being like similar to like you know the vet like a veterans multi-man tag team match on a New Japan show, and I just really didn't see that because you had a lot of moving parts here when it came to storyline, and you don't really get that. In those undercard kind of young lion veteran dad matches, yeah, in New Japan. It, 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 yeah, it's not it's not a it's not a fair comparison at all. No. Like, there's actual like like even in New Japan, like there might be like a little bit of story there, like to, to see like a young lion's progression and see like a young lion right. get more offense, like young lion like you know might be on a winning team, like that kind of stuff is like worth paying attention to, but it's not nearly the same as like furthering a storyline and then giving uh. Cody's brother yeah. a shot at the title that Cody just lost. Right. Like they they are accomplishing things here. Yeah, exactly. Like, whether you like the match or not. <laughs> yeah, it's like the the idea of that with the young lions or whatever, it's like it's just kind of like part of a ongoing story of people's development where this is like an actual like yeah, like you said like things are happening, you're actually getting changed, your developments are happening. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this with with the way that uh, Mr. Brody Lee treats Colt at the end like that's a huge angle coming out of it really for them realistically if you think about it Dark Order hasn't really suffered a lot of defeats like this they lose and stuff but this is the first time that you really see Brody Lee losing his cool and he's really pissed off like even when he lost the title match against Moxley you don't really get this level of like reaction from him so it's like yeah like obviously this is important and then you are playing into building up a title match that Seems like it could be pretty cool. I mean, Dustin Rhodes is still very good, and Brody Lee is kicking ass. So that's a fun match. Um, follow that up, tag team match. Uh, FTR versus Omega and Page. Long, I guess, would be one way to describe this match. Um, too long, I think some people might describe it as. Um, look, man. Oh, 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 I my main issue here is I don't understand how a tag team where all of their matches were based off of heat, all of their, like, legendary, classic, like, amazing matches, best-of-the-decade matches, were based off of crowd heat and environment and atmosphere and timing and playing off of the crowd and feeding and emotion and fire. Like, how people, like, don't understand that and then, like, judge them it's like, oh, well, all they do is 80s, 90s moves. Like, no, right. like, you're missing the whole fucking environment mm-hmm. that's needed to make something like this work, and you're mad at them for that. <laughs> well, this is, it comes down to, and this is one of the stupidest old school smart wrestling fan things that people say, and it, up until recently, it felt like such a trite thing to even say. It's like there's people who get confused with the difference between wrestling and work, and the revival FTR are a team that I think confuse people very deeply with that because they don't understand because people say FTR are very good workers. And if you don't understand what people mean by that, you think that that means that they're very good technical wrestlers and they play up a gimmick because they're smart workers. They play up a gimmick that they talk about themselves as being very good wrestlers. Oh, we're the best tag team. We're the best wrestlers. They call themselves mechanics because we're so, you know, stuff like that. 
And so if you don't understand that the whole fucking point of what they're actually do is work a crowd and make a crowd react and work a crowd's emotions and get them to do and, what they and, want and, and, and make them want the baby faces to win yeah. and get the big like you know joyous moment when the fresh baby face gets tagged in and cleans house like yeah. what are we ta- like what are we talking about here yeah so if you overlook like, we, like, that yeah it's just like it's very easy for people who get confused by that to think like oh shouldn't they just be good wrestlers and this match should just be fun to watch in a vacuum and it's like no they're workers FTR are fucking great workers. Like, that's it. I won't... Mechanically, solid. Honestly, sometimes they're a little bit sloppy. I can definitely say they're very basic. But they're fucking phenomenal workers, man. Their timing is perfect. And when you don't have a crowd, you don't have shit for them, unfortunately. That's why I honestly think that this was a bad call for them to... I mean, it was the time that they were able to get them to come in. And obviously, they wanted them to come in from the start. But it was kind of a bad call. That's what they like... More than anything, I feel like they just got they just have bad luck of the draw. Yeah. Like more than anything, right? Like brought these guys in, they are like a big deal to a to a, like a certain section of the audience. And like it do, it wouldn't make sense to just sit on them and not have them like, you know, you know, come like, you know, come in when they're like readily like readily available. But at the same time, like you are missing what would make them really good here, which is a fucking crowd. Like when they debut, when they come in in the car and like they're and they're like storming the ring and helping the helping the young bucks out. If there was a crowd there, like that's probably like a really big moment. But because there's no one there, everyone's like, oh well, here's this, and it's like it's not fair to them. Like it's not like and and that goes for anybody that's debuting under these circumstances. Like it's just not a fair thing. Like Brian Cage can get over it because Brian Cage will sit there and like do some outwardly spectacular shit mm-hmm. like throw Darby Allen into a fucking like lighting <laughs> grid or something like you know what I mean like Brian Cage can do that when these are guys that are like have their entire like you know relevance has been based off of creating these really hot atmospheres for a wrestling match and now you're taking that away from them like and then they're surprised when the match isn't you know as interesting as their other ones were because there's no fucking crowd. <laughs> yeah. And it really sucks because there's a segment of kind of norming wrestling fans that that look at them as say, well, they bombed in main roster WWE. And it's kind of like, well, even their time when they were there, unfortunately, WWE main roster crowds are not trained to react to good work because they're just not They're They're at this point. I think that main roster WWE fans have just given up on the idea of work. And they can they can they can react to good work like when Miz does it like or whatever or, or whenever, like, whenever someone that they're like you know trained to respect right you know does it they there there's no problem with it because they were never conditioned to respect the revival the revival were always jokes yeah so it's like, just kind of like they never they, yeah no go ahead like they never they never they never mattered like even when they held the titles like like from everything they ever did like you could say like oh well they when they got a get got beat up by an MWO or the DX whatever the fuck it was like that was trying like them trying to give them a rub like no it can, that's the shit that conditions them to make them not take them seriously yeah so they just they never got a chance to really have a crowd that was going to react to what they do in WWE and then you turn around and they show up here and unfortunately I think that there's a, a segment of the of, of the fan base of wrestling fans in general who look at that and go like oh, we heard all this stuff about Revival and NXT, but then they show up in WWE and they're bad. And it's like, well, yeah. 
and then they show up here and then they don't have a crowd to to fucking lose their minds to them and and honestly watching this match if there was a crowd they would have lost their mind this this match was worked super well for a match that's in front of a saying. crowd like it's like yeah like, like i think that's why like for me like i'm looking at this and i'm imagining like how these guys are work work towards something like I know what Kenny Omega works towards in, like, his mind towards wrestling. Kenny Omega doesn't wrestle for an empty arena. He wrestles for, like, a arena filled with thousands of people. Like, the revival, like, works for a, 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 a taping or an arena filled with a bunch of, like, rowdy, rumbunctious wrestling fans. So to me, it like like for this environment, for this setting, was that was this the wrong call, the wrong style of match to work? Maybe I'll give you that. I think that they could have agent, age, uh, you know, produced this better, you know, agented this better, and made something that was more conducive to the times and settings that we're in. But for what these guys offer as wrestlers, as their strong suits, then like, what would you rather have Kenny Omega and FTR do? Like, this is what they're made to do. Yeah, and this was, I mean, done really well. Like coming out of it, I think I've heard some talk of like you know Kenny Omega overreacted, blah blah blah. It doesn't make any sense the way he's acting after everything, and it was kind of like that's I mean pretty easy to overlook. But one thing I noticed in the match, and you know someone could point out like where I'm not exactly correct, so I won't say like 100 percent. But the way I saw this match, like repeatedly, Kenny saved Hangman. Except for in the end, with the um, the stuffed pile driver, Kenny just wasn't able to get in there to help him, and that's when he loses. Um, but throughout the match, Kenny saved Hangman, but every time Kenny was in a pretty shitty situation, Hangman was never there. Like, yeah. he never saved him once. He never... And so, in the end of it, when Kenny says, everything I fucking did, and it is, it's kind of like, he means every time I saved him. Every time I... You know, all the stuff that I did... And he, when I finally had to count on him to be able to do this on it, like to take care of himself, to be part of the match, even when Kenny hits him with the V trigger, where people say like, I heard, you know, the takeaway, like, oh, why is Kenny overreacting? He fucking hit him with the V trigger. And it's kind of like, well, Kenny is like, well, yeah, when he came out with the buckshot, I was smart enough to duck because I was paying attention. He wasn't able to get out of the way. But he's, he, like, he, he's, always, he's always out of it. Like he can yeah. hit me and I'm just like, I'm, I'm not losing my shit about this. Right. But then I hit him. And not only did Kenny hit him, right, but like I said, like, he should have seen me coming and got out of the fucking way because I was able to just do that before. Afterwards, Kenny is pulling on the tights. Kenny is imploring him. Kenny is doing everything he can to try to get Adam Page back into it, and nothing. He's just dead. You know what I mean? And it's like, again, it plays back into it. Page is just never there for Kenny throughout the match. If you're looking at it from Kenny's side of things, Page is never there for Kenny, but Kenny is there for Page the entire time. Not only not only that, it's like not only that, it's like, you know, Kenny has like dealt like, you know, dealt with like upsetting his like his longtime friend and the young bucks. Right. For this guy. And all that kind of stuff. Adam Page, if you watch like being the elite and all that kind of stuff, like the backstory of like you know, him like feeling like second fiddle to everybody in the elite and that no one like really respects him and that like everyone cuts him off and doesn't really care about how he feels and all that kind of stuff. Like that backstory is good and all, but then like, you know, things can work both ways like he can feel that way and that's a perfectly valid emotional response to feeling like you're being slighted and no one respects you and then a kenny kenny who's done nothing but try to work things out with this guy is like look man there's been how many fucking months of this and 
and you and you and you're still acting this way, right? Yeah, and it is. It's that thing where like people take it like the 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 um. Oh, they made Paige stay in the elite, and and you know he wanted to leave, and then they they like talked him into staying, and it is kind of like if you look at it from Kenny's side of things, it's like, why didn't you just fucking go? Like no one really did make you stay in the elite. You could have just left and not been here, but you came back, and I tried to make it work, and the entire time. You've just been a fucking, like, you've had a bad attitude. And Kenny's done everything he can. Like, I'm sorry, but, like, offering a beer, like, if Kenny was, you know, straight edge, he kind of is, but if he was, like, openly called himself straight edge, trying to give a beer to a straight edge guy is, like, willing, like, can be a fight, can be a fight starter in some situations. But Kenny was cool about it. He's like, actually, I don't drink or whatever, you know? And then they acted like he was the fucking asshole. And it's just like, okay, whatever. Like, you know, and it's just, like... Yeah, there's a there's a lot in here to see where Kenny's coming from. So the people who are saying like, "Oh, Kenny overreacted. Oh, Kenny's the one who hit him." And again, it's like, "Yeah, but he almost hit Kenny and Kenny got out of the fucking way." So it's like it's really easy to look at it from Kenny who's he's been very nice to Paige this entire time and he's done everything he can to make this tag team work, but like when it comes down to it, Kenny is like a perfectionist. Kenny is he holds himself to a very high standard. I mean, the elite, the idea of the elite comes from the fact that he considers himself to be the elite, the greatest wrestler in the world kind of thing. So he doesn't really want to continue on like with a tag team partner who he doesn't see holding himself to that same standard at all. So it makes perfect sense. Um, one takeaway. So what, oh. what, so what, what, what did you think of like uh, Omega leaving with the Bucks like together? Like, you know, running into them backstage and you're like, look, man, like I know that like. I, I've been like trying to work with this guy, and I'm like, I'm I'm not dealing with this anymore. Like, what like, what do you, what'd you think of it's, that? Like going along going along with how the Bucks acted earlier. It's really interesting because it is yeah, like it, it feels like you could have an elite heel turn, but it's, it's also it's like the it's, it's like it's like the core elite is like they're about to get that like nasty edge back. Yeah, kind of. which would be nice. And I could even I honestly would like them to not even turn heel, but just to have some edge, like you're saying there. Right and. And you could go from there, like, who knows? Because there's people who are rumoring this idea that there might be a four horsemen group. Who knows? But you could have, I mean, you almost have it ready made to have, you know, Kenny and the Bucks. And then you've got Paige and FTR. And you've got these two tr- trios that are like, both have bad attitudes, both have a mixture of heel babyface. And then you've got who's the, you know, who's the fourth member to make the four horsemen when who knows if Cody Rhodes is coming back. You know what I mean? Who knows if it's something left field that I can't even think of who's going to join up with them. But like, yeah, it's like the idea like, Oh fuck. Like you could have this four horsemen stable that's forming with like some of the top guys in the company with the tag team titles in, you know, in the conversation between probably FTR and the bucks at this point. And then it's like, yeah, like damn, you've kind of, this is really, this is very funny because it's becoming like major mind palace thing where a lot of people have been talking about this idea that there's going to be a, uh, like a four horsemen stable in AEW. But like the idea that you have these two trios developing and it's pretty much ready made to just have one more person join and and create like a four man unit. And it's kind of cool, especially if it is involving Mm. Kenny, like the elite FTR and Page, which is kind of perfect. It's almost like a, a new school version of Country Jacked or something like, um, which is like, kind of would be pretty fun um, to see where we can go from there. Um, but yeah, I I I, I enjoyed that. Um, what uh, what did you think of the the kind of post match situation? 
No, like, I think like that's what like the best part of Paige and Kenny has been with this run is that like the matches are good, the matches are good, the wrestling is good, but like like the little details like in between everything, like the body language and uh you know, uh and just seeing like and just seeing like Kenny go and break up pins and try to do the best he can and then Paige being kinda of, like statistical or whatever. Like, you know, like looking into stuff like that has always been like the better part of looking at these Paige and the Paige and Kenny story. So I'm glad to see another chapter of this, whether this means like there's a there's a breakup, maybe they reconcile and work it out, uh someone turning, whatever it is. I'm I'm def- I'm definitely interested because, especially coming out of the main event where 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 you know spoiler alert like a spoiler alert like Moxley Moxley retains, like we still haven't gotten Moxley versus Omega round two. Yeah, and you know the belts are off of the belts are off of Paige and Kenny now. So like maybe by the next like you know I, obviously you don't want to blow right by like Kenny and Paige which has been building for such a long time, but. Kenny and Moxley do have some unfinished business. Yeah, and you can even you can even have a match and have it tease with some shenanigans at this point, and and build up to a three after a two if there's some kind of fuck finish involving Paige or something else. Like, there's a lot of moving pieces. Moxley still feels fresh to me, even coming out of this title match as the champion. So I do think that. I mean, spoiler alert for the review later. I think it was smart to keep the belt on Moxley at this point because I do think that he still has a lot of a lot of things that you can do, a lot of gas in the tank for what you can do with this championship reign. And Omega is definitely on that list. On top of, I mean, the biggest looming head over everything in AEW, to me at least, right now, and maybe other people don't see it as a big deal, but, but Pac, I mean, the second you can get Pac back, it's fucking on. Because he instantly becomes a game changer for whatever storyline you decide you want to stick him into. He can completely change the complexion of everything, you know? So, there's... Yeah, you definitely got... You got Pac looming over everything. When he can show back up, who knows? You know, just based on how shitty everything has been going here in America, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, you got that. You've got a lot going on. So, coming out of this... This match and the show overall... Like, this was... This was a good step on this. And where we go from here, it's, like, very interesting. And I think that you did definitely sow some seeds even for this to kind of not be it even for the tag team, like you said, because you had the Young Bucks telling him, like, Kenny, you're overreacting, chill. And Kenny has been the cooler head the entire time. So he can come back from this and be like, yeah, you know what? He didn't do anything over the line. He was upset. He said some things, but he didn't really do anything. So he can easily just go, like, you know what? Yeah, I was upset, but you know, let's make amends and go back for the titles or something. You could do anything really coming out of this. So you're not really stuck in any way, but it is very intriguing. One thing I wanted to mention, just a question. Tell me what you think. Kenny Omega's missile drop kick. Is that the best missile drop kick in the, in the history of wrestling? Because I can't think of a better one, honestly. Like, uh, the one, the one Kenny does like the back of the head kind of thing. Um, it's, I mean, like, I mean, like, Masato Yoshino exists. <laughs> fair, but I don't know, man, the, the, the accuracy. I get, I get what you're saying. So, like, I, I really like, um, the springboard drop kicks that I've seen people do, like, a boot, like the one, like the one Abushi does. I really, I really, I really like that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, like I said, Masato, Masato Yoshino's, uh, missile drop kick is, like, 
probably the one most people would say. Right. But Kenny, but Kenny's is really good since he started doing that. I've really always liked looking at Kenny's because like his is like so precise all the time that like it looks like it almost like shouldn't like like oh you probably shouldn't do it to somebody yeah. kind of thing like it, on- like the ones that, the one like the ones that he hits that he's hit Okada with were like yeah. oh shit is Okada okay like the way that he his body turns into like a drill it's like it looks like something out of like fucking street fighter or something his body turns into like a drill pointed down through his feet like he turns into like a perfect like (laughs) nail coming down from the heavens to like go through the back of someone's spine he just turns he just turns into a screw yeah exactly it's fucking nasty like because he comes he doesn't catch a bunch of air but the way that he twists his body and comes straight down into a point it's fucking brutal looking like yeah, yeah, I just I think that it's like, for me, for just the everything about it, the the physicality of it, I just yeah, it's 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 very pleasurable to look at for me personally. Um, follow this up with a match that is not super pleasurable to look at really in any way. Um, Momosa Mayhem. I guess the only pleasurable thing to look at in this match is the referee. Um, shout out to uh, <laughs> to to big uh, big Tim because I know he's a fan of uh, of this referee, um, and I'm not talking about myself. Um, but we get it'd be it'd be, weird, it'd be weird to shout yourself out yeah, on your own podcast. Exactly, Jericho, Orange, Mimosa Mayhem. I hated the pools of Mimosa on the outside. I really thought that they honestly looked kind of cheesy and like something out of like Double Dare from like like Nickelodeon or something. Um, the match itself, I mean, working around the gimmick, they did a pretty good job. Um, I think if this was like, you know, Onita exploding barbed wire, no rope barbed wire kind of match, like I could see it cause they did a good job working around the gimmick in that way to build up the drama, but it's pools of mimosa. So I don't get the same level of drama. You know what I mean? Um, mm. so they put in that, but it just feels Unfortunately, because of the context, when you work to that level, it then makes it feel like a parody. Like you're kind of doing it postmodern, like tongue in cheek, making fun of like the big drama from like an old school stipulation wrestling match like that. So, yeah, like that, that takes me out of it. Um, And then otherwise, like, you know, Jericho... I don't know. Jericho has been to me, and I know that you're not on the same page 100% with me, but I do know that you've liked some of his stuff. But I've liked gimmick match brawler Jericho, especially like in New Japan and stuff. But here, like I said, I just I think that he took it the wrong way, where he turned it into a joke. And the stuff that made all that other stuff work was that it was was the violence, and this felt like taking that same idea but turning it into comedy. Um, maybe I'm out to lunch. What did you think, Quentin? Um, I mean, I think like this, like I feel like for some people, there's probably like a more effective way to use Jericho because a lot of people don't want to take Jericho seriously. Like they see Jericho as this, you know, guy nearing fifty years old that's near the top of the uh, scene in AEW, and like he talks goofy, he acts goofy, he you know does this like whole delusional thing. He just says crazy, outlandish shit. So like he's a guy that you know, for some people, he sh- this is exactly what he should be doing, having like weird, wild matches like this um i'm not sure if like i specifically want to see him this way because like i don't really like jericho as like uh 
walking, walking, brawling, like you know, kind of, kind of, kind of guy. Exactly. I think I like him more for like the person for the for the personality aspects and the funniness. Like you know, something like the Stadium Stampede, like where he like where it's just like all personality driven. But the part I do, but the part I do like about this is Orange Cassidy getting the rub and showing how seriously they are taking Cassidy and you know seeing like you know how far they can go with this thing yeah no I can definitely see where you're coming from there but but like I said I think my biggest issue here was the mix the stadium stampede Mm. and the over the top comedy can work but the the kind of like doing that but again like playing tribute to um to like a classic no rope like exploding barbed wire match with teasing like going right. into the thing or the piranha death pit electrified pool water match thing just turns it into like a melodrama that like I said makes it feel like like a tongue in cheek mockery of wrestling mm. rather than just being so you can do the goofy and the and the and the funny but then don't like lean into stereotypical tropes as well at the same time I hear, I hear, I hear what you're saying there. Like, I don't know. It feels like. Well, what do you do? What, what, what do you do here? Do you like work like a real, like legitimate match here, and with like you know with no crowd, which is like pretty much like the exact opposite of what you want Chris Jericho doing of all people on your roster with Orange Cassidy? Do you like go full comedy in a way where like Orange Cassidy beating Jericho doesn't mean anything? I feel like they tried to find a middle ground and maybe for you it just didn't land. Yeah, that much. that's it. I just I think that they they shouldn't have tried to try to find a middle ground. And I think that they should have not done the Mimosa Mayhem match just because it doesn't get it doesn't get across what you're trying to do. Unless you did it like I don't know. I don't know. I guess if you did it more like it was just a fight and there wasn't a lot of teasing and work around the, the pools but then I guess like again that defeats the whole thing. So yeah, I mean, I think for me it just didn't it didn't land because of that because it was not the time or the place for that. If what your plan was is coming out of this, you would have Orange Cassidy be taken seriously as a guy. And I can understand thinking that like part of the thing with with Orange Cassidy is that you you still want to be able to play the tongue in cheek thing with him, and maybe they can make it work. And he has historically. I think that Orange Cassidy has done a great job of being able to be serious and comedic at the same time. But just this didn't, this specific one did not work for me. No, it's, I, def, I definitely, like, I, I hear you. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm more mixed on it because it's like, you know, would I rather them have a bad match with, in, in this setting? Um... Then what? I, then I then I'd have, then I'd rather have him like have have this like weird fifty fifty thing. Would I rather Cassidy's win be viewed as a joke? Like I don't know. Like so like I hear you. I don't like love this match either. But like the alternatives for me like don't sound like very appealing. Very appealing either. So like it's, it's a thing where like I don't I can't I won't say they booked themselves into a corner. I guess just like all I can say is hopefully like it leads to better things for Cassidy. Like in any in any situation. Yeah. No. Hopefully, hopefully this means something for him moving forward, and they they actually do something for him, and and he gets like actually it's good because I think he has done well um, with like the opportunities that they've given him. He's delivered, and he's one of the better wrestlers in the world, really. Um, 
and he's finally getting a shot to to show that off because uh, he's been very good for a long time not just as orange cassidy but also as fire ant i'll just say it <laughs> you know like whatever Are at this you, point you unmasking you unmasking wrestlers on my podcast I know, i'm sorry i'm sorry but you know what are we gonna what are we gonna do here um so follow this up uh if you didn't know chris jericho was also a ultra liger so i'll just unmask everybody in this oh, match shit. um so we uh we follow this up with the main event of the evening for the aew world heavyweight championship um I don't even know if it's a heavyweight title, technically. AEW world title is all it says. Um, John Moxley versus MJF. Um, I really liked this match a lot. I... Okay. Again, like I said, coming out of this show, I'm like... I thought that this was a very good show. I think that, unfortunately, they had some... We talked about it, some, some mistakes. Some like straight up mistakes like botches mishaps they had some mistakes in judgment that really hurt the flow of the show um they open up with the you know the cinematic match that i think killed really killed your chances of opening up hot and then they just never got out of their way throughout they didn't have i don't think if you look down the card they don't have a really anywhere they don't have a run of more than two okay to good matches in a row like or they don't break that. They only really have like two like very good matches. And then even like you could look at the women's match, the eight man tag, and then the the tag team title match, right? That's like the closest thing. It's like three matches in a row, but the eight man tag is like we've all said like fine and good for like story and not bad, but it's just like you never get going. You never feel like the show is on a roll and then it hits like a speed bump. Um and so I think that it really hurts the overall perceived quality of the show. But when you stop and look at it, I think that there was a lot of good on here. And I thought that, like, this match was really the epitome of, like, kind of my talking point on MJF that I've had for years at this point. Is that, like, people overlook how good he is in ring as a worker. And I thought that, like, his opening stuff here was phenomenal. The focus on the arm here. And this is where I talk about, like, the, the women's match where like you wanted to see the or I wanted to see the focus in the pinpoint um base setting like play a role through the entire match but this match it did like the arm work from MJF in the beginning I thought was great and it played a role in the entire match and that goes into like Moxie's selling obviously Moxley sold his the arm amazingly here um I I do like hearing people like you know Meltzer talk about like the banging the arm into the 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 turnbuckle to like pop out the shoulder and like talk about it like such a good thing and it's like something terry funk would have done and it's like kind of yes but also like i could definitely see people thinking that's goofy and silly and so it's like it is a weird thing to point out as being like the greatest thing because to me like the the actual like slamming your arm into the turnbuckle when he was sitting on the mat to me doesn't work i've seen moxley do a similar idea um where he's like hooked his arm on the top rope and jumped onto it to pop it into place and it's looked more realistic. Yeah. The like kind of slowly jabbing your shoulder into the corner while laying on the mat thing just it, it looks a little silly and it's like a little bit over the top. So it's just funny. Well, I've, I've seen I've seen I've seen him do it do it do it another way where like remember here like at like his FCW or I think sometimes in WWE he just like uh just like was rimming rimming his shoulder into like the, into like the turnbuckle yeah kind of so I've, I've seen him, I've seen him do that before so that's like definitely like more of like one of his like 
staple things for like for, you know it's like tough guy craziness like you know he's gonna like pop his shoulder back in place like every now and then i always thought like the one with the turnbuckle looked more realistic yeah he has like he's doing it here but he's doing it at the bottom turnbuckle while while laying on the mat and that's the yeah, one where yeah, i'm yeah, like that yeah, looks right. a little silly like the one where he's like jamming it into the top turnbuckle while standing uh-huh. or like i said where you like put your arm over the top and like jump onto it like yeah. can kind of look a little bit more realistic so it's just it's funny to be like the way he sells it just comes across more real or this like weird wild man and it's like i i guess it comes across goofy but like that's the thing about terry funk like a lot of people like terry funk is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time i think i had him like number three number two or what are you you about to make my about to make my point i've always made about terry funk what's that that he's a cartoon character yeah, that he, that he can get like, all his cartoonish yeah. shit, but fucking Shawn Michaels and Kenta Kabashi and everybody yeah. else gets, like, shit on for it. No, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. I had Terry Funk, like, number three, top three greatest wrestler of all time, but he was a cartoon for the, character. For the, record, for, for, for the record, when I did that, I think he was number three on mine, too. Yeah. yeah, but he's a cartoon character. He's great, and I think that wrestling, in some ways, can be very good as a cartoon, or at least it could in, like, the 90s. Like, I think that there's one thing that people overlook and it's one thing that I think is very important to keep in mind is that like professional wrestling has like AC and DC, not AC, BC, like AC, BC, um, for MMA. And we talked, we started out the show talking about MMA stuff a bunch, but I think that professional wrestling before MMA existed could get away with a lot more. But after MMA, there's a line of demarcation where certain things I just don't think can fly anymore because you have an example of the real world version of it. And Terry Funk is a very good wrestler from the before time. Like he's a little bit of a cartoon character and it was okay because at the time you didn't have MMA and you just didn't have like the concept of what would really happen if basically this thing that we call professional wrestling was like actually happening. You know, and it's just, I think that, like, that gets overlooked, and it's just the truth. So, John Moxley, the shoulder thing, he's done it for a long time. It's always, he does it, he doesn't do it all the time. He breaks it out every now and then. It's kind of like um, Chris Hero and his double-jointed finger thing. He doesn't do that all the time. Um, and Speedball, I've only seen him do it once. Has Speedball done the double, double-jointed double finger thing since the uh, since the match with... Um, uh. with no, I, th- I still think I've only seen him do it that one time. Yeah, that one time. Maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he did it in OTC, and I just don't remember. But I've only seen him do it that one yeah. time. So it's like you've got these little. Some guys got these little tricks, and they bring them out every now and then. And it's like a nice little quirk that you can do sometimes. But yeah, it's like every now and then Moxley does the shoulder thing. I thought that there was a lot of really cool stuff. One thing that I really love was like MJF doing the the arm ringer into the whip into the corner, but he just he runs with Moxley the whole way and then snaps the arm down halfway through to throw him shoulder first into the turnbuckles and it was just like a cool little interesting thing that you know i've probably seen before but don't remember so it stood out novel as like a thing to focus on the arm work and again the arm work to set up everything was great the selling from moxley was great i do think that i like the idea and as a table turner and the look of it was really cool but it felt so abrupt and out of nowhere that it just it took me, it took me aback, and I would have liked a little bit more lead up. But um, MJF getting catapulted into the post and then coming up bloody and just like a complete bloody mess felt a, was just a little bit jarring. Um, but I did like that, like he came up a bloody mess. He was covered in blood, and then the blood actually had a chance to dry up, and he got back into it, 
And then there's a headbutt exchange, just unprotected headbutts that open the cut back up. And then, so you get like a double, you get a second blood juice job from MJF in the same match, which was like kind of cool. Cause I've never really seen someone execute that so well, where you had like a cut that was like a, a really a major tide turner in the match, but then it, it seals back up and you stop bleeding to almost to the point where you forget about it. And then it comes back into play again. That was kind of a nice little like wave, just ebb and flow of the storyline of the match. So yeah, I mean, I thought that this was great. And like I said, coming out of it, I mean, Moxley feels like he's got a lot of juice left. This was a guy that people were talking about possibility of him taking the title off of Moxley, but you come out of this and it feels pretty solid that like he's done with him and now he's moving forward and he's got more in front of him to keep going. So yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this quite a bit. I thought that it delivered as the main event of the pay-per-view. I thought it delivered as the champion proving that he's the best. I thought the finish, and I've heard a lot of different kind of arguments about how, why the finish works. MJF still has a bitch and, and he can complain that, that you know, Moxley cheated and this and that. But one thing that I kind of saw when I, when I came out of it was like Moxley, what he hit was kind of like a elevated DDT. You could even say it was like bloody Sunday kind of thing. Like you could make an argument that he didn't necessarily exactly hit the death rider or whatever they're calling it here in, in uh, AEW. Um, so you can kind of like, you could play off that too, where you can say like, he didn't necessarily hit the double armed DDT. He just kind of hit like an elevated DDT that was like similar, but maybe it wasn't exact. And you know, maybe he was trying to, but his arm was messed up so he couldn't get the grip. And that's why he didn't get the exact move. So it was kind of like in a weird way, sure he cheated and he, he broke the rule, but MJF working his arm over to the point where he couldn't use his arm also kind of helped M uh, Moxley in the end because he didn't exactly hit his move perfectly because he couldn't clasp the hands like he normally does. So to me, I, I kind of like that because you have both arguments. You have MJF can say that Moxley cheated and, and you can also make the argument that Moxley didn't actually cheat because he didn't hit the move he wasn't allowed to hit. So I thought coming out of right, it, like, yeah. Like, there was like, there's definitely enough steam here to like rehash this match yeah. and like keep this going forward for sure. Yeah, but you can also have Moxley move on so you can go either way so that's what's kind of cool here because it's like i don't know where i don't know where we go next no I, I i really like this match everything that you said i agree with uh for me personally there's my match of the night um i use mjf like he's not perfect as a wrestler i feel like people have like super high expectations of him and you know i feel like this is really good for him especially someone like moxley um who can like make him you know you know get into like these like tough like these more like tough exchanges like Cody and MJF like they're gonna like they're only gonna go so far it's only gonna go feel so real like with Moxley like everything's gonna feel like real like a legitimate struggle like a fight like he really doesn't like somebody like he really wants to fight somebody and like dragging MJF into his world and then MJF and you know imploring uh you know deploying his tactics of cheating and low blows and inter interference and all that kind of shit like I think it's a perfect clash and like the blood over MJF's nose and them getting eye to eye and that, and that kind of stuff. Like it gives MJF more, cre more credibility in my opinion than anything that he did with Cody. Cause I feel like the Cody stuff only like really established him as like a really good heel. I feel like now going toe to toe with Moxley and like, in spite of the cheating and everything, like feeling like a credible threat, like MJF feels better coming out of this than he did before, which is like 
really like everything you can ask for coming out of a title match like this. No, definitely. Yeah, because you, you elevated the challenger and not necessarily even in just the way you would expect. And I think, it, again, it goes back to kind of my talking point for a very long time at this point is that MJF gets overlooked for how good he really is in the ring for because of being a good talker. Um, and this was a chance to show that off. And in... Moxley is the perfect guy for him to show that off with because Moxley does I don't think really cares about getting outshined in the ring, and I think that we saw in the G one we saw you know a little bit here and there when he was showing it off since he's left WWE. Moxley can go, he likes to work kind of a little bit more grounded shoot style style, but I don't think he also minds being the the kind of the guy who just sells and doesn't really do and show off a bunch of offense and that's what he did here to let to let MJF really show off what he can do, um, and. And then come out of it being like, you know, the wiser. He he really, in a lot of ways, he is like a modern day Terry Funk. Like he is kind of a, you know, a, a, a cartoon character. And that he can like sell big and cartoonish and then like kind of sneakily get the upper hand with some like craftiness. And, and at the end of it, you're just like kind of still rooting for him, even though he can cheat a little bit or be a little bit underhanded. But, you know, you wanted him to pull it off in the end. And that's kind of, it works for him. Um so yeah coming out of this I don't know do you have any big takeaway talking points coming out of the pay-per-view uh no I'm curious to see like what what's next for Moxley like are they gonna move on to a new challenger for the title a new feud right away um is he gonna take a take a backseat a little bit and let you know they're gonna let, let Brody get some shine what's going on with Kenny and the Bucks and Paige like I like how things are I like how things are looking right now for AEW yeah they have a lot set up moving forward and a lot of like options and I do think that like people who say that this was a bad show or their worst show or whatever might not be wrong but to me I come out of it and I'm still it's still promising because I don't think I think that there was a lot of stuff that happened here bad that was some miss decisions that can easily be corrected and some stuff that was just straight up accidents and it's like you can't necessarily always make the best choice in the moment but you can deal with it afterwards and hopefully that's what they do. All right, we're ready, are we ready to get to summer struggling. Yeah, uh, yeah. Take a and jingle. Take the lead on this. Whatever you want to talk about, I can talk about. But I don't really have. I'm not super passionate about getting into every match on the on the card. Oh, neither am I. We're, we're going to skip over Kenamaro versus uh, Kawato, okay. who is now Master Wado. Uh, the fatal four way was really weird. Uh, yes. Yano, Okada, Sonata, and Despi. Uh, Pretty much the majority, of, pretty much like the main portion of this was just Okada and Sonata being in there, going back and forth with each other, with each other, and then you know Yano coming in and sneaking sneaking a win, which is really fun and cool. But it just it was it was weird to see this man. Like I'm not I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you, it was weird to see like this kind of four way with like relatively heavy hitters in this, and just like really really threw me for a loop, especially because I don't think it was a particularly good version of this match and I feel like with more practice New Japan could get good at it but just like for this not being a thing that they do very often you could tell that there was like not like a ton of comfort here yeah. with this yeah and you would think I mean obviously Sonata and Okada are two guys who are not completely out of their element in a situation like this but it's been a long time since Okada has done anything like this um, so it's kind of like yeah it. who knows if he's out of practice and I would say that like you know, 
Yano and Sonata in a match like this is, is really fine by me. <laughs> like, like if you're, if you have to have them on the card, I'm okay with them being here. But yeah, Okada and, and Despy, which like, whatever. I'm accepted that Despy's a, a you know a mid to low card junior. He's not even considered at the top card of the junior, but I think he's very talented. But him and Okada feel wasted in here just because of how talented they are. Obviously, as far as I'm concerned, but. But if they did commit to something like this and they and New Japan worked to have their wrestlers get better and, and focus on this, like I wouldn't be shocked if New Japan could like put together really good like you know four way matches and stuff like this. But yeah, this is a little bit shaky. Um, luckily, you had a few like you said like Okada and Sonata in here as the base of it to like at least keep it somewhat like together throughout the entire match. Um. It, it, it was just me or just like just you know caught in this situation like I'm glad like I don't think that he's above this but it was just like so weird like because Okada just doesn't give a fuck at all like Okada is like willing to do any yeah. like any and everything just to like you know I think that's like I think people like always have always have this perception of Okada because of how he's been booked that he's just like you know this golden boy nothing but main events never goes for secondary titles da 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 but like I feel like Okada like really just doesn't give a fuck yeah I mean He's. You have to always remember he's a Torimon guy at heart, so I think he's totally fine with doing some bullshit like this, like goofy stuff and things like this. And plus, it's Okada. He's he's fucking weird. Like he really, you yeah. know, there's the stories about him and the Young Bucks being buddies back in TNA and stuff. Like he's just a weird dude. So he gets along with the best friends. Like I would not be surprised that he's just like he's into it. He. Uh, it's it's honestly even but, more impressive to think of the Rainmaker character. And how well he yeah, pulled it off no, when it doesn't fit his personality at all. Yeah, like, that's the thing is, like, I don't think there's a more, like, jarring, like, change between, like, person and character that I could, that I could think of. Maybe from, like, something, like, drastic, like, like, between, like, Undertaker and, like, Mark Halloway. But, like, from Rainmaker Okada to, like, how he is outside of that, like, people, like, really think that he's, like, some, like, arrogant like dick, like dickhead or something, and I know a lot of people like who like follow like the Twitters and Instagram like don't think that, but like I feel like a lot of people like really have that perception of him. It's like no, he's a fucking weirdo who likes to go, who likes to go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh Shingo, Shingo Takagi versus Minoru Suzuki. Uh, the match I was most looking forward to on here. Uh, didn't wind up being my favorite match on the show, but a really really good match like you would expect from these two though. Yeah, yeah, hard hitting fight, but. Even with how good Suzuki is right now, and the fact that even in 2020 he can definitely deliver, he's still not quite at the level that he was like even three years ago. Like, yeah, he's just he's he's getting older, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he works his style, and he's again we talk about like FTR being a worker, a guy who's just he's got both though because he's a great grappler, mat wrestler, but he leans into the work, work, work in the crowd stuff. But he can bring it on the mat when he needs to. But he's just physically... I mean, the guy has been wrestling for a full-ass career on top of the fact that he did proto-MMA before that for a full-ass yeah, like, career. Like, yeah, like, did... Yeah, was doing mixed was doing mixed martial arts and whatever like capacity like whether you want to talk about like the like the legitimacy of the outcomes like he was doing it for a long time. Yeah. So it's just he's physically. I won't say he's shot because he can still go. But okay, he's not shot. About like my next question was gonna be like despite all this like I feel like if you want to talk about his last like two years or whatever like maybe three four however you want to go like 
He's having one of the better old man runs. Oh, without a doubt. That, like, I feel like you could talk about from, like, even the Yuji Nagata match from New Japan Cup this year, the Tanahashi match from a couple of years ago, uh, the Okada match from uh, the G1, and the one from from Royal Quest, the tag, the tag team stuff with Zack, the Liger match. Like, I feel like Suzuki, like, someone has to be cut, like get in that conversation of, like, best old man wrestlers ever. Because, right. like... It, it's getting it's getting kind of ridiculous that like we'll like talk about like other people, but like I feel like Suzuki just isn't really getting getting talked about getting talked about enough. Like we will talk about Masaki Mochizuki more than we talk about Minoru Suzuki, and I'm not sure that that's like exactly that's right. okay. That's not right, but also I was gonna go like insane over the top on that one, so. I will just I will go with you that you're right about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want I want to know where you're gonna go with that. Well, no. What I was the what I was gonna say, and this might sound insane, but it's like my point is not necessarily like a hundred percent that he's on the level, but just the presentation is that unfortunately New Japan people talk about New Japan being really fucking loyal to their elders and like you know you have a job for life and all this and that, but you don't get a chance to really mean anything unfortunately it doesn't seem like it and Suzuki might and I can we can still see but my my point or the thing that popped in my head was like Fujiwara or like um right or like okay. Jumbo you know what I mean like guys who were able to have like old man runs that were like treated with like major respect and got to have that aura like even if you want to talk about even not even just Japanese people like but also in Japan like the destroyer you know guys who were able to have like old man runs where they were still like treated with the reverence of being like able to main event and like majorly respected and i think that Suzuki could be in that conversation but unfortunately new japan right now doesn't give like people of that age bracket that same level of respect to where they can pull stuff like that off. And that, and you know, whatever, like here he wins the never title from Shingo. And like, that's kind of the level of what someone like him they'll give is like a never title run, you know, and he can do really well with it. But I think if they were, if new Japan was willing to present someone of his age at the top of the card, I think that he could still like give those kind of performances, but whatever. No, I really do, but you, like you mentioned, and I know you're not saying that he's on those level, but, like, I don't think that, like, Minoru Suzuki at, like, this age is, like, that much less talented or even less talented at all than, like, Jumbo in his later ages or Fujiwara in his later age. Like, I feel like he's about that same talent level. Right. Yeah, so, you know, that's just kind of my, kind of my point is that I think that in a different time when, you know, wrestling in Japan treated... Even, like, someone like Anoki, when he was, like, getting towards the end of his career, like, could be in the same, like, kind of conversation where, like, he could be being treated with, like, that level of respect and reverence. And he's not going to. That's just not what New, New Japan is, like, very much focused on the youth. And it's really smart because look at how well they've been doing. They've been building and building and drawing bigger and bigger shows until coronavirus hit. They were, like selling out bigger and bigger drawing bigger and bigger houses because they started focusing on the youth and they continued and it kind of started with Okada we talked about him earlier but like you know that that youth focus did really help kind of build the company so I can't blame him but unfortunately historically older guys were able to get to show off all right we follow this up like, oh, like 
Well, well, for reference, I don't think Tanahashi, if he's still around by this point, is even going to be like nearly as good as Suzuki is. Obviously, right. like, I think that's going to point I'm making here too. Is like even like someone like Tanahashi, who someone might rank like higher in an all time capacity. Ooh. Like, I can't imagine Tanahashi being fifty two and still being as good. Right. No, I, I can't imagine Tanahashi being fifty two and still wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that's a whole nother uh, conversation because people have been saying that forever about people that work kind of that higher pace style and it comes or like it it depends right um mm. like it say hey speaking of higher pace style <laughs> junior heavyweight uh, title match follows this up uh Hiromo takahashi versus taiji ishimori um okay so you said this is my favorite match i was gonna my, say god damn it show. you jumped in on me yeah i was gonna say you said that the last <laughs> match wasn't your favorite this was it damn it all right yeah <laughs> okay yeah this kicked ass so quentin tell me about it um, like, I feel like a lot of people, like, have been turning on Hiromu lately and, like, aren't really, like, getting the whole scope of how good of a worker he is because, uh, you know, albeit, like, I think New Japan kind of pigeonholes him in a certain style, but, like, again, if, you, if I've watched a dude, like, I've seen, I saw, like, him versus, like, Maximo Sexy from, uh, the, from, from January 1st, from 2016 and all that kind of shit, like, that dude is a really fucking good wrestler, like, all around. And I feel like, you know, because New Japan, like, has him in this, like, wild man role, this flamboyant weirdo, like, you know, people kind of, like, just, that's all he is. And, like, I was really happy to see him get to do something else other than be that. And, like, there's still aspects of it. There's still, like, a really, like, fast-paced, frenetic, crazy counters and sequences and reversal shit going on. But, like, there's a story of Haramu's arm, like, and shoulder, like, being, you know, enforced here throughout the entire match. And you alluded to this earlier about how, like, the actual, like, you know, limb work and the body part, like, playing into the finish. And Ishimori, despite, like, all the high flying and shit that he can do, he had a game plan and he stuck to it all the way to the end. And even if that's not his normal strategy, he saw a weakness in Haramu and exploited it and wound up and wound up like taking taking that all the way to to a victory, and to me like, I thought that that was I really really liked this match. It caught me by surprise. Uh, Ishimori hasn't been like super good to me lately. The last couple of years, I feel like he's maybe been hurt and hasn't lived up to the best of his ability in some cases. Like the uh, Wrestle Kingdom match with Kushida, even if that was maybe like some booking that prevented that from being as good as it could be. Like I feel like. Ishimori just hasn't uh in any in any in any scenario quite hit the level he did for me from that Best of the Super Juniors finals with Hiromu. So I'm just pleasantly surprised to see these two knock it out of the park again. Yeah, this was one hundred percent the match was that I was referencing when I talked about the uh the AEW women's title match and the, the limb work playing a role in the finish. Um because of because of exactly what you said there. Like not only the work from Ishimori, but also the selling from Hiromu throughout. There was I could definitely see a little bit in the middle where you could like someone could complain about him blowing it off somewhat, but I think it came back into play and made a big deal. And like you talked about, it pivoting and not being necessarily Ishimori's number one game plan normally. Um, so much so that it's like situations where you would normally expect him to go directly into a pin. He doesn't. He he transitions to looking for arm locks um so it's like stuff like that where it just makes perfect sense um 
and especially playing into the finish. Uh, Ishimori is a guy it's very odd to think about because, like, when you compare someone like Ishimori here winning a title, someone like Shingo losing a title, like, New Japan is in a weird place where they've got guys who have come in from other promotions and are in, like, somewhat prominent roles, and especially with the stuff that's going on with COVID and not being able to bring everybody in, it's kind of like... Like where where are we where are we going? Like, you got the next match of the tag team titles with Saber and and Taichi, who are both guys who like are not New Japan trueborn. It's like a lot of a lot of New Japan is starting. They're starting to push and book more like of the the yeah yeah things are getting really loose now. Like before, like you could always see that like there used to be like a certain ceiling for guys you felt like yeah, and now it just feels like things are like the doors are like completely blown off. Which is great, especially right now. And we'll, I mean, we'll talk about it with the main event. I mean, Evil, Evil winning the title just a few years ago felt like probably something that would never happen. And we could talk about, like, if it was worthwhile or if it was any good or if he's any good even. But it definitely doesn't feel like something that New Japan would have done even just a little bit ago with someone like him. They might have done, like, a similar idea and a similar character, but with, like, a gaijin in his role rather than what he did. So... But anyways, um, I don't know if you have anything else to say about the junior title match. Nope. Uh, we can move on. Dangerous Tuckers, uh, Taichi, and Zack Sabre Jr. versus Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi. Um, Taichi and Zack are really cool together. I've always, I've always liked the little bits we get we got of them. We mostly got Zack and uh, Minoru Suzuki together in, in, in a tag team capacity up until this year. So this is something that like I'm still cool with. Um... You know, it, it hides a lot of Tai Chi's flaws. I feel like Tai Chi, like, even if he's, like, gotten better as a singles guy, I feel like he's not someone I want to watch in long singles matches. I just don't want to see that, whether that's, like, versus Naito or versus Okada. I just don't want to see him in long singles matches. And I think giving him a guy like Zach, who can, like, who knows how to keep, a, like, you know, a control period interesting, in my opinion, like, that helps make up for, like, some of the stuff that Tai Chi lacks. I feel like, and like, you're never going to have a good, bad match with facing Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi and like, you know, being the whitest white meat baby face of all time. Like, it's like so foolproof in a lot of ways because Taichi has a personality. He has like the, like the testable, like character and gimmick. Zach wrestles like and exudes like heel cockiness and charisma and everything about this just works for me on, a, on like a really basic fundamental level. Like it didn't need to be anything more than it needed to be and I thought it was just like exactly what it was like a heel team dominating and getting a good win over like a like over a team like that's full of stars like it's Tanahashi and Ibushi and I feel like Taichi and Zack like belonged in there with them they've done a yeah they did a really good job having the Golden Aces basically be a setup team that felt believable like this was legitimately the way the direction they were going I think that people could have bought into like a thousand year reign of the golden aces as like the tag team champions and then you have the the dangerous techers come in out of nowhere and win the titles from them and become like this really solid tag team that now feels like they have their number even when they're selling even when they're like pulling bullshit and so if you talk about the like zach and and taichi really complements each other super well but as you say that i'm like you know what taichi is gotten acceptable but when do we start the conversation where we talk about Zach as one of the greatest tag workers of all time? 
I think me and you right, both okay. really appreciate him as a singles worker, but I think that like talked about him earlier, Dustin Rhodes gets like this really, you know, historic, monumental kind of history of of uh of, of as a tag team worker because of how many great, you know, pairings and tag teams he's been in. But how far is Zach from really being in the same level of like having so many great tag teams that he's been in, right? Like, well, well, like obviously I agree there. Like the one thing Zach is missing is he, is he didn't work WCW in 1988. Right, so that's the main right main so main. Unfortunately, main Zach doesn't isn't able doesn't have a time machine. and can't go back to wrestle before he was born, basically. Um, but yeah, like think about. Zach and Tommy End, great tag team. Zach and Marty Scroll, legendary, influential tag team that is a big part of what even makes the the UK scene exist. Really, in a lot of ways, I mean, them getting buzzed in, 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 in their second run. Yeah, both runs really, but yeah, mm. they become like a big part of it. Then you've got Zach and Yoshinori Ogawa, not a tag team that a bunch of people think of. But a really fucking good tag team in Noah Junior tag yeah. team. Then you've got a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot. A lot of people didn't watch like late period Noah though. Yeah. So they or, or, or like around like that period in time, like Noah was on a decline. And like for me, like I'm a lunatic. I've like I watched like fucking <laughs> 2011 through like 2014 Noah up until Kenta left. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of great stuff with that tag team. Then you've got Zach and Suzuki, like you mentioned, another great tag team. And then now you've got a lot of a lot of really good matches between yeah. Zack and Suzuki too, like a lot of really good matches. And then you turn around, and now you've got the Zack and Taichi tag team, and the dynamics continuously change. He plays different roles in every in every tag team. He basically like suits himself to to be a partner for the person he's wrestling with. And it's just like, how do you how do you not start to look at Zack and say? Actually, Zach might be the greatest tag team wrestler of all time. Like he might be in the conversation. Even even like his random like one off teams, like yeah. uh, like there's like the Zach and Callahan team for you yeah, know for facing heroes yeah. eventually die, or um, uh, or uh, I, I know you remember this being like being like you know we were, we were still watching progress at the time, but that match between like Zach and Choppa versus the Origin. Oh goddamn! Like, like that's a, like that's a really fucking good match, yeah. like probably one of the most underrated matches in progress history like if people go back and watch that match it's like a really really good little match there yeah so there's just there's tons of phenomenal Zach tag team matches and Zach with different partners Zach having a tag team like a regular tag team Zach having one off tag teams all this stuff and it's just again the way that he suits in here with Tai Chi to kind of fill in for Tai Chi's deficits, just show like his wrestling mind. Like he's got, he really knows what he's fucking doing. <laughs> like, you, you know, you know more than anything. I think if like you know, all these years of Zach, like you know, can, like continuing to be a mainstay in wrestling, I think it more show so shows that like people that like tried to talk about Zach and he was like so like such a one dimensional wrestler back when he was like you know, getting off the ground and all these kind of guys. And this goes for all the like the. Uh, "Quote unquote grapple fuck guys, whether it's you know Gulak or Thatcher or Oni, um, you know, or Zach, like all those all those guys in that vein got you know, you know, getting called like one dimensional, all that kind of stuff. It's like no, like 
Zach like is is like as is about as plug and play as it can get. Yeah. Like Gulak is about as is about as plug and play as it can get. Thatcher is proving to be that same thing too. Like Oni, like he'll probably, he'll probably never get that chance, but like Oni, whenever he gets a chance, like absolutely kills it. Like these are guys that kind of got dismissed as being like you know the boring guys or working the boring style or doing whatever else, but like they're proving that like no, like we're like competent, like normal, like like rounded wrestlers. Yeah. No, I mean. When you mention that, I mean Oni, yeah, like he had, the, he's got the tag team with Birch. That's another thing where it's like he's a very similar role, but he's showing that he can do the tag team style with the same thing. But yeah, like Zach, plug and play. Like Zach is one hundred percent the most plug and play wrestler there is because he just he brings. There's, I mean, there's one, there's one wrestler who we've had on the on the podcast who's very smart and 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 can definitely always make the most of any situation he is. Um, and you know, Dan Makabe, like, but I, Zach is in that conversation. I mean, the guy is just as good when it comes to like getting the most out of every situation, making something out of what he's doing against fitting his role, like certain stuff just stands out that you like remember forever that he does, where he's like playing outside roles, different styles, doing all this stuff. How about, how about this one? Does this one stand out? Do you remember team suplex Zack Sabre Jr. And Angelico? Do you remember thinking Angelico was good <laughs> because he was tagging with Zach against Ozzy open and yeah. mustache mountain. Uh, do you remember? Yeah. It was a- yeah. <laughs> do you remember Matt Riddle and Zack Sabre Jr. Against Keith Lee and Shane Strickland randomly on an AAW show that was phenomenal. Like, yeah, even the one-off tag team matches that he has are phenomenal. The guy is just, He's one of the best wrestlers of all time, obviously. That goes without saying. I think we've already like kind of established that on this podcast. We both believe that. But tag team, like, you could honestly say, like, Zach is a tag team specialist. And he doesn't even have to, like, necessarily focus on it. But it's really cool that he's well, getting it, to show that off it, here. It, it, oh, go ahead. Well, it's funny that, like, I feel like the way that we viewed, like, you know, guys who are tag team specialists, it's like, you know, like... It is funny, like who, like who, like who, like you know, gets to fit in there, and then who doesn't? Like you mentioned, Dustin Rhodes. Like, why does Dustin Rhodes get to fit in here, and then like no one else gets the same treatment Dustin Rhodes get as being called like a all-time great tag team worker? When like usually everyone else has like at least like one like all-time great tag team to point to. Like, if you're going to say Alex Shelley is one of the best tag team workers ever, like you can point to Motor City Machine Guns, right? Or like, or like you can point to like. Any kind, any kind of like Generation Next stuff, like, or if you want, or like Roderick Strong, like Roderick Strong is maybe like a better version of like what people say that like Dustin Rhodes is, honestly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I feel like cause people talk like talk about like the versatility and like being able to work with different people. Like Roderick Strong has done that. I feel like even more than Dustin, and you can say Dustin's more is that he overachieved. In those capacities, like no one expected him and Booker T to be as good as they were together, <laughs> you know. Like, I, like I, like I understand that, but like Roderick Strong has done the exact same thing and has done it like better, in my opinion, than Dustin has. Yeah, and I mean, even adapting like to a different, like someone fitting the same role but a different person, like the um, Jack Evans being replaced by Pack, and it's like I almost would argue that the Pack team was better. And it's, like, he had to adapt to someone who, like, could do a lot of the same stuff, but, like, had a different flair. And he totally did. Like, he completely was able to, like, make that work to where, like I said, I, I felt like that team was even better. So, yeah, like, to talk about that guy. And then he's got the Austin Aries team, which, like, people talk about, like, a, you know, as a legendary thing. And, like, it doesn't even really stand out to me when you then compare it to, like, on top of that, he can be 
or do, or like the or Dojo Bro. Yes. Well, I was gonna say like he can be the guy who's replacing his normal partner with Pack, or he can be the guy who was replacing someone else's normal partner and then also still making the team better with the Dojo Bros or with Red Dragon. When you replace Bobby Fish with or, Kyle O'Reilly or or, de- or, de- or decade, yeah, like. you pop him into decade and he's the greatest tag team. Yeah, like so I think. And, and, yeah, go. like it's, it's go go no, ahead. No, like, no. Yeah, I feel like Roddy is like Roddy's like I don't know. Like I feel like Roddy's like the better version of what people like. At, like and Dustin's great. Like yeah. Dustin is one of the best tag team workers ever. Like I'm not gonna take away from him, but like it feels like like Dustin like Roddy's like a better version of what people like say about Dustin. Right. So yeah. So so using Dustin as the comparison point, Zach should be in the conversation as well as being a great tag team worker. Roddy blows everybody out of the water. That's fair. I'm I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh that was a good that was a fun diatribe there. But like I said, we get to uh we get to see some uh some Zach tag work here hopefully for a little while with this tag team and maybe they can make something out of the tag team titles. I don't know where they go from here cuz it seems like Golden Aces are done. It seems like the way that I can tell yeah. from from the storyline wise Kota Ibushi is ready to move on, which makes sense because because of he what happens he in he the main event. Exactly. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and, and G one is coming. G one's coming, and what happens in the main event makes perfect sense because it's time probably for Coda to focus on someone who he has some history in, not just as a a, a competitor, but also as a former tag team partner. Um, right, the Stardust Geniuses. We can. Uh, uh, short short lived, but short lived. But yeah, yeah, but I mean, for me, I'll never forget them. It's one of those tag teams. It's like a nightmare violence connection. I I never forget. <laughs> you know. No, I, I I agree. I, like, I remember being super excited. Like, oh my god! Like this yeah. Naito and the Bushi tag team. Yeah. We're like we're in for something. that's like, oh, what the fuck, man! And this was that tag team formed before uh, before Lij, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that was right. But that was right before that was right before yeah. the Lij uh, stuff. Because people act like no one liked Naito before Lij, but me and you were both excited for Stardust Genius's tag team. Huh? That's weird. Um, I mean, look, I mean, look, look. I'll always say that. Like, I liked. I liked Naito like yeah. forever. Yeah, like, you know what I mean. Like, like Russell King the mate versus him versus Okada is like Oof. I genuinely really liked that match. Like the uh, 20, 20, the twenty thirteen G one final between him and Tanahashi, I feel like gets underrated because like we've had so many good G one finals like you know every year since then. But like I like I like Naito versus Tanahashi better than I like like. The Okada versus Nakamura final. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah I like that match a lot. Yeah, so I just I okay, think that there is uh, a lot of revisionist history that it's like nobody liked Naito until he came back and formed Lij, and it's like nah, there was there were some of us who were into Naito for for a while. Um, it was like his booking just you know, yeah whatever yeah you got, you got, you just got fucked over. <laughs> so anyways, we get into the main uh, event here, and go ahead to see a Naito. Tetsuya Naito versus Evil for the, you know, conjoined IWGP Heavyweight and Intercontinental titles. Uh, I, I don't know, man. Like, okay, I'll say one thing that I forgot to mention during the show. How I love baseball stadiums being used for wrestling events. Yes, I love it. I really, really like it. Part of why I love Puerto, why I like, why I like, like Heyday Puerto Rico so much is. Like a a full packed like baseball stadium, just like one of those visuals is just like so like like stunning when you see it in like the realm of wrestling. So like 
even with this not being nearly that full and not being nearly that many people there, I still really enjoy the visual of a baseball stadium and wrestling. Just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, like Field of Honor. Every year, Field of Honor was yeah. always cool, even if it wasn't packed, just because it's yeah, it's happening in a baseball stadium. It's it's cool. Um, I don't know. I understand that evil was done out of necessity. I understand. Like, would he have turned this year anyway? Probably, I guess. But, like, it was done out of necessity because Jay White is not available. I understand that. They were in a tough spot. Kenta isn't available either. So there wasn't much that they could do here. So, in order to advance Naito with anything, they went ahead and went with evil. Did that make much sense? I don't know. But, like, in the current situation where, like, people weren't really allowed at shows, you're not really losing out on, like, if, if you, like, book, like, uh, Naito versus Okada or whatever, for, like, a couple match program, like, you're just burning that because no one's gonna be at the fucking shows. Like, you tried to do something that was, like, interesting, but, like, you weren't burning up, but you weren't burning money either. And that's exactly what this was. Now, Evil clearly is not good enough to be in this spot. Never has been, never will be good enough to be in this spot. He's a perfectly, like, capable, like, mid-card tag team guy who can occasionally, like, you know, step it up for, like, really awesome, like, G1 performances, like him versus Jay White or, like, or like him every time he's in the ring with Okada. Like, he can usually step it up, but for this specific role of being, like, the commanding, domineering, cheating, bullet club, lead, like, leading heel, is just not good for him. And... Like, I know it. They tried. They tried with the other match. They tried with him versus Hiromu. They tried it here again. It's like, this just isn't good because, like, not even, like, the finishing stretches here can save it for me. Like, like you know how, like, usually, like, the New Japan matches have, like, a finishing stretch that can, like, you know, boost it up for people. And, like, you know, oh, man, that was a great match, even though, like, the first 20 minutes sucked. But, like, this right here for the for like, Evil just can't do it. And I'm glad that this seems to be over. I hope that they can get everyone back and their their roster can be at like full capacity soon. But I I understand why the evil thing happened. It just like it just does it just didn't work at all, in my opinion. I I agree with you on the big picture on what you're saying. I think I might like the my only real disagreement would be just like what evil can be like kind of there what you're saying because I I honestly think that evil is like best and it sucks because he's best in like a role where he basically feels like someone who who has seen Ishii but doesn't understand why Ishii is good and like just kind of does the like the heavy hitting stuff and just the physicality and misses like all of this nuance of the selling and like the story aspects and the things that like get you emotionally invested Evil just feels like a guy who can go through the motions of, like, a, a fight-style match um, without really, like, having much depth or anything else. And so when you then put him in this role where he's supposed to be this, like, cheater heel or whatever, it's like, 
It's just so fucking hollow. And it's very funny because it's a direct comparison to Jay White, who so many people have shit on and said is like so fucking bad. And I just wonder how many of those people see this and realize like how good they fucking had it with Jay White instead of evil. <laughs> like, see, I, I, I didn't think you were going to take it there, but that's like a really good point. The amount of people who acted as if Jay White was so fucking terrible and like realistically compared what Jay White was doing to this and like, tell me that Jay White is bad. Like really, because his matches were so much better and like really kind of like what he delivered in the same role was so much fucking better and believable and like I don't know it's just it's it's crazy to me to to see this and I don't think anyone will make that comparison in their head they just it'll just fly right right by them and they won't think about it but to me yeah and we'll, and we'll get and we'll, and we'll get Jay White back and we'll just like go back and like I don't know if Jay White's the guy I don't know if he's this like okay cool like just really there's there's clearly more to being a heel than just yeah. like wearing wearing black and being all like domineering and commanding and all and all and all that stuff it's like you know you have to you have to like you know wear it all the time like your personality has to show it all the time you have to be that person like in that match 24 <laughs> 7 like you know evil is not that he's just evil he's the exact same dude pretty much just like with with all like the i guess like knockoff ishi shit like toned down now yeah and that's the problem it's like again like i think that he he can be good as just like a, a hard fighter kind of guy who who doesn't really have the, the like kind of the depth and the the ability to like every now and then like bring out some some like interesting stuff. He's just kind of like I don't know, he's kind of boring. It's fine. But to have him play this role and it's just like so fucking hollow and it's so like infuriating. And I don't know. I mean there's the rumors and all the stuff and people are talking like this wasn't like you know rushed, and this was you know this was the plan all along, and thing. That, that is that is not that is just not true. At I all. don't <laughs> I don't feel like I believe it. Right, like it, it that can't be it. it for the, for the way that this company has been has been run, like suddenly evil's gonna win New Japan Cup and turn on Lij when every like just like when everyone else happens to be gone. Right, like. Just based, just remember based on like how Wrestle Kingdom ended, right? Like, no one saw the virus coming and becoming and becoming like the way it did. Like, Jay White loses um, the first night to Naito, and then comes back and beats Abushi the next the next night. Like, but was pretty much implied that that was a number one, number one contender, uh, number one contender match. Like, you tell me Jay White wouldn't have gotten a title shot. You tell me like you know if everything went according to plan Jay White wasn't going to be the guy like of course like Kenta got his title shot and it was a hot angle but like of course at some point Jay White was going to come back and get the t- and, get, and get a title shot right like so like if, if you are so like if you already did this hot angle with Kenta attacking Naito like after his celebration or during his during his celebration Jay White already is pretty much like set in line for a title shot at some point you need to turn evil heel and that was already a plan of course it wasn't a plan yeah i mean there's people who talked about it they say that like before the year started that there was already rumors and people talking saying that evil was going to turn heel and all this stuff who knows it turn okay i'll say this i'll say this turn heel maybe right turn heel and do what he did 
Of absolutely not. Right. It's just yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense with the way that they book. It seems super rushed. I mean, Kenta won the uh, the American New Japan Cup, right? So like obviously they're gonna do something with that. Jay White's showing up. G one starting. There's rumors that there's some outsiders that are already in quarantine in Japan right now, like foreigners not from Japan. Um, obviously, probably Kenny Omega who are in quarantine right now in Japan. Maybe Jay White. Who knows? Um, who are gonna be in the G one? We'll see. But yeah, so like, does does this make sense? I don't know. I don't think it does. Did I don't like? What do you think of the experiment for evil here? What do you think? Like, what should they do with him? Like, is it is it fair to just move evil back down to the mid card, lower mid card, and just do nothing with him after this? Or does it cheapen I mean, the title? Like, like, should someone who's a former champion be treated with respect from now on? I feel like. Due to these circumstances, I almost feel like New Japan should be given a pass for how they move with evil. Like, I feel like even though, like, you know, as fans, we want to, like, have conclusions and answers to everything and, like, have, like, stuff already figured out in our heads, like, they did this because of the virus. Like, the virus severely impacted their plans and how they were going to go, like, go with things moving forward. Like, in my, to me, I feel like, you know, everything from this point forward, like, I think they should get a clean slate, in my opinion. That might not work for everybody else, but I feel like they should be getting a clean slate because, like, hey, look, man, we tried. Like, we had, we didn't really have anything else to do. We already planned on turning evil heel, but like, now no one is here for him to be like, like the underboss or like some serv- subservient uh, guy in the group. So, what are we gonna do? And it's like, well, we have a we had we did have a big angle plan. So, like, why don't we just like you know make him the guy I, I, I just feel like uh, at least for me I'm going to give them a pass for the evil run and I know a lot of people are gonna, like might view that as just like New Japan fanboying or like a cop out but like I'm just I, I gotta give him a pass for that like no one foresaw like what was going to wind up happening here right and how long everything took it was like you know if you remember in March April, people were saying, like, oh, three months, two months. Like, this has been a long time. Japan is doing better yeah. than America, but even Japan is not really running full shows yet. Yeah, so, like, wh- wh- where, are you, where are you at with it? How are you going to, like, you know, what is your expectation for how evil's going to be booked going forward? Do you think that, like, he should be treated with respect? Should we act like this didn't happen? Like, I, where, where are you at with this? I think that. I honestly think that he should probably fall somewhere in the in the realm of like an upper mid card kind of guy now. I think probably be treated like similarly to like the the thing that keeps popping in my head is like Fale, like a guy who can be heated up instantly and believable to beat anyone and can get a title shot whenever. Is honestly where I think he should be moving forward from here on out. Um but I think it's really tough to do anything else with him now. Similar to Fale, where it's like it, it's almost impossible for them to like, like, do any other like thing of of note or interest with him, where he can't like, r- like do a tag team title run or win like a mid card championship or you know what I mean? Like remember where Fale had the Intercontinental run and it just felt like so weird. It's like stuff like that. Like it just won't make sense. And yeah. I just I think that that's where his place is. I think that I don't think that. You can really do much with him moving forward here, and it really fucking sucks. Because it was, like, a pretty bad run, and unless they just, like, really get behind him in the sense of, like, his wrestling style, 
and really let that shine with the kind of match that he works. I don't know that you can do much more with him coming out of this. And it and the the, pro- the problem with evil for me is like the stick has like the stick is like you know going on for so long now, and it's like to me like the best evil we've gotten is like when he does like glimpses of him wrestling as a baby face, right? And like this clearly just isn't like what he's meant to be. Like evil is a fine like uh like guest like guest character or like side character or whatever to like whatever somebody else is going on as far as like what he is currently but as far as his in-ring style he's much better as a babyface and always yeah. has been yeah even the ROH run he was like awesome as a babyface so yeah, yeah. I, mean, I saw I saw him versus uh Dijak live and like that was him that was him like with the color with the colorful shorts and everything and like he's a really good babyface and so it was always weird to me when he came back and he was this but like you know, you just gotta play the cards that you're dealt. Yeah. And you know, if they, you know, I, I, I guess I understand it. Like, you know, like you know, evil. You know, Watsonabe was the Watsonabe was never gonna be like this big star. You know, due to his size and look and everything, he was never gonna be that. So like, they made him like you know the best use he could be for the roster. But you know, at this point now, I really do feel like something has to happen for him. Like at this point, because like who's like who's gonna take him seriously at this point? Right. Well, yeah, and here's the thing, and it popped in my head a little bit because I was even caught up in it, but it's like, we're talking about evil a ton here, but what about the champion? What about Naito? Like, what like said, What do we like think I of Naito feel, coming out of this? Like, I feel like this was what was meant to happen if Jay White was here. I feel like he was going to lose the title to Jay White, and they were going to feud over the summer, and then, like, you know, Naito was going to get it back. Like, that's just classic New Japan right. booking, how things usually go there. In... Again, like things just got fucked up. Like, and I'm I, I'm glad that I think like in some in some ways I think like Naito's gonna like kind of like be re-energized with the G1 coming up and like things being fresh and possibly you know going to like some semblance of normality. But like this was meant to be Jay White versus Naito. Sorry, like th- th- it was it was meant to be that. Well, I mean, what do you what do you think of G1? We don't have the blocks. We don't have the 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 night. We don't have the cards. We don't have anything. Um, Do you think? I think I think we're gonna go safe here, and I think Okada wins G one. Really? And you think we build to Naito I, Okada at the dome? I feel like you have to go safe here. I feel like Okada hasn't won G one in a long time. Yeah. And Naito is the champion, and will remain the champion. I feel like for the foreseeable future, and like. I feel like in times like this, like you should go with the safe option. And people might not want to hear that, but like the safe option right now would be Okada to win G1 and go with Okada versus Naito whenever you can get that match. But what about the idea that you can't fill the dome? Like you were talking about not burning uh, money and, and Naito Okada is a money match, even if they already wasted I, it once. I feel like now with the stage, you just have to like do whatever you can to like survive and keep working like you know they're back they're back like you know they're gonna be they're gonna be fine financially but like you know even if it's like uh let's say let's say a half filled or half capacity dome and everyone's wearing masks and all that kind of stuff or even like a third capacity or whatever like 
I feel like you just need to do something to keep that fan base enthused, to keep the fan base interested at some point. Like, you can't you can't make it seem like you're throwing in the towel yourself. Right. Like, you can't do another evil situation. You can't do that. You can't just sit there and like keep being lazy about it. Maybe Sonata was G one this year. Maybe if you want to keep like doing like the splintering of LIJ thing going on, maybe Sonata was G one and you can run Naito versus Sonata at the dome and you can keep holding off on Okada versus Naito again. But like I feel like I would keep I will keep playing it safe, but I think if you wanted to like keep going forward with whatever like narratives you've already, you know, set for Naito already, that Evil already betrayed him, Evil and uh Hiromu had a title match and all that kind of stuff. If you wanted to do Naito versus Sonata at the dome, I'm like I don't think that's like a far off thought. Yeah. No, I mean you could do Naito Sonata, you could Okada Naito could be good. Um I I I'm trying to think cuz in my head I kind of was thinking like who could be the guy that you can pull the trigger for the hardcore fan base because that's maybe who you should be trying to serve in this situation. And that, be, it'd, it'd be Sonata. It would be probably Sonata because like otherwise like who's the underneath guy that everyone is wanting and it's like for years and years it was Shibata but he's gone so I was kind of thinking like Shibata um, but it's like yeah it's probably Shin- Sonata now like, it'd, be, it'd be like it'd be like Sonata Shingo like LIJ guys like, yeah that's what they want they, like we wanted like Naito versus Hiromu but like you know that got fucked up yeah. like I think I don't like, think they the, could like, do the, Hiromu like, winning G1 I don't think they will the, the money the money is in LIJ versus LIJ yeah. and not necessarily evil you know we just saw that like Evil maybe isn't cut out for it, but like the money is in Naito versus Sonata. The money is in Naito versus Shingo. The money is in Naito versus Hiromu whenever that eventually happens. Like those are the money matches there. So if you don't want to go back to Naito versus Okada, if you want to keep that back in your back pocket, if you want to transition into Naito versus Ibushi, like I feel like that's very feasible too. Yeah. But I think for for me the most likely thing is I see a very safe pick for G one this year. Was was it Ibushi Naito was the final last year? No. Uh, Bushi J White. Okay. Oh yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm. Okay, I got confused because I'm just thinking, maybe uh, Abushi wins, but Abushi won last year. Yeah, he won last because, year. So. Be, but because they did the fuck title thing, he ended up not being even in the the final world title match. The the yeah. tournament thing. Um, because I was thinking he could win, but he just won last year. It wouldn't. I guess he could go back to back. And Okada hasn't won since 2014. Yeah, Okada. I think Okada is the safe pick. I think you're right about that. Um, but here's the question now: What does this? What does G1 look like? We don't have to get into exactly the blocks, but with the mix of local, like you know, local people who have been in Japan versus people coming from outside versus possibly outsiders from different promotions like what do you end up thinking I th- how I th- safe th- do you I th- think it looks I, th- I, th- I think the hope is that you can get people like to be able to have extended stays in Japan you know I think the hope is like you can get Jay White and Kenta to like you know be in Japan for a month right. you know what I mean like I feel like you know that's the hope instead of having like everybody like you know flying back and forth which is what the G1 is when you're booked for G1 you're staying in Japan for like you know however many weeks at a time you don't have the time to go like flying back and forth like Hopefully you can get like Osprey to come in like you know 
stay for a month you know and all that kind of stuff but not another guy that we didn't mention who would be like a really like good benefit to the tournament like it, it I, i'm curious how they're how they'll do it because like the, like a month stay in japan is, is a lot different than like trying to like come in come into japan uh, for a week and then like and then le- and then leave back out. Well, Osprey has a residence in Japan. That's the thing about Osprey that's weird. It's like as soon as he can get into the country, I think he would go and stay. He feels like a guy who's right. kind of pretty firmly rooted in Japan. I mean, I, I would think the same. I would think the same thing about Jay White, yeah. and then you know Jay White's not here. Right. I would have assumed that Jay White lived in Japan to begin with, and then find out he lives in Florida, which seems very weird. Like you got this New Zealander who's, you know. Uh, employee of a Japanese wrestling company that for some reason lives in Florida. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I, I but guess, Juice. I we'll, like, talk People more. have talked a little bit about Juice showing up. Do, mm. Does it matter even? Yeah, yeah Ju- Juice wouldn't matter. I mean, I, I, he's a he's a guaranteed good match. Right. I mean, like, he's fine. Like, he's gonna be like a gonna be a good guy to have. But in terms of, like, people who are gonna be difference makers, like, the difference makers that are missing are gonna be, like, you know, Jay White, Kenta, and Osprey. Right. I don't know. I think that we're gonna like talk about it more as we get close as we get closer to it and more and more gets gets announced. But uh, otherwise, anything you want to say before we head no, out no. here? That's it for me. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and hope you're here next time.